BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, that 49ers Eagles game, man, was that a bummer or what? I got to tell you, I, uh, I woke up Sunday morning really excited about seeing, uh, seeing this NFC championship game. And only part of it was due to the fact that, you know, I'm a Niner fan. But I was settling in for two great games. And I thought the Bengals and Chiefs mostly delivered on that front. But I, uh, I was really excited about seeing the Niners play the Eagles. I mean, Brock Purdy is a rookie. The 49ers defense, Christian McCaffrey, probably, uh, you know, comeback player of the year, all that stuff. Watching uh, the Niners down the stretch, really a lot of buildup. I even went to the grocery store. I don't do this. I went to the grocery store. Like, I go to the grocery store, but I don't do it in the context of, hey, there's a big game on. Let's get some snacks. I took the 8-year-old. We wandered over to the neighborhood grocery store. I said, you know, what do we want? What do we want? Like, what's the perfect, like, game day offering if we're going to have a little watch party at our house? And uh, she said, you know what? You got to make grandma's spaghetti. And I said, okay, I will do, uh, I'll do spaghetti and meatballs, but we got to have, like, the normal, like, chips and dip and guacamole, and we got to have... Uh, you know, we got to have some uh, broccoli, and we got to have some carrots, and we got to have some ranch dressing. And, and so the 8-year-old and I uh, put together this whole spread. Like, you know, we could have fed an army. And then we settled in for kickoff, and I watched the game just uh, unravel like a ball of yarn in front of me. I'm left uh, thinking about the 49ers season. I'm left thinking about the NFL and the 53-man active roster rules that – really limit teams uh, that get in quarterback position. Like, that shouldn't happen. The position that the Niners got in, uh, down they're already down to their third quarterback. They bring in their fourth quarterback, who, frankly, uh, really couldn't even take a snap. So I, I just kind of wonder, hey, if they had a fifth quarterback that was available to play, who would it be? And would that person be able to take a snap? Because as I'm watching this game, and I want you to tell me if I'm blinded by my allegiance or not. If I'm watching this game, even when Brock Purdy went out of the game, when the Niners came back and Christian McCaffrey scored on that touchdown run and they tied the game up, and I was kind of watching uh, the game, you know, head towards halftime with a 14-7 to Eagles lead. That was before the 49ers backup, 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 backup quarterback dropped the snap and the Eagles cashed in for a 21-7 lead at the break. I was kind of thinking this is going to be interesting to see if Kyle Shanahan can MacGyver the second half and keep this game close. Ultimately, it caved in on him when it became evident that the 49ers just had no downfield pass attack and the Eagles obviously playing the line of scrimmage, doing what they should do and forcing the 49ers to pass the ball. I still thought it was remarkable that San Francisco got a score, but I left the game Thinking about the NFL rules, I left the game thinking a little bit about officiating. I thought there were some ticky-tack calls both ways in both games that kind of left me feeling like, hey, I need the officials to be less a part of the action on my NFL championship weekend and hopefully the Super Bowl. I don't want to see the officials being a story in the Super Bowl. But I left the game wondering if the 49ers had just had anybody 
healthy as a quarterback. If uh, you know you bring in anybody in that situation, what kind of game is that against Philadelphia? I I actually leave the game going, gosh, I would have really liked to see the 49ers at full strength play this team. I would have loved to see a great championship game. And in that sense, I think it was a loss for the NFL, at least 50% over the weekend. Uh, The AFC game delivered. It was dramatic. It came down to the end. Uh, I don't know if you were a Chiefs fan or a Bengals fan, but I thought it was pretty compelling football. Again, though, I think the officials played a role in that game. I thought it was embarrassing for the NFL that it was, you know, who are they going to call and ticky-tack calls both ways and uh, I didn't like the game being decided on a personal foul uh, but at, you know that's how it fell in the AFC game but I want you to give me your takeaways from the weekend 503-417-7575 is the phone number we have a great show today Clark Judge will be joining us legendary NFL writer he'll be joining us at four o'clock I'm going to ask him about the league what can they do with quarterbacks with the roster how big a story is it is it such an outlier of a situation that you don't even uh, you don't even consider it really if you're the NFL or will they start talking about adding an additional quarterback for a playoff game can you add an additional quarterback so you don't get in that situation I don't know I don't know what the solution is but there's a lot of scuttlebutt today about what the 49ers should do with Brock Purdy is Tom Brady watching that game going, hey, I'm the missing piece in San Francisco? Because all Kyle Shanahan needed in that game to have a chance was a healthy quarterback. Really, literally any healthy quarterback, I think, gives them a chance to be in that game and make it a fun game and a fun, compelling NFL weekend. I also think that the officiating being a story, and everybody's talking about everybody on social media was talking about the officiating and, and – uh, what was right and what was wrong with the officiating over the weekend and the even the Chiefs Bengals game? I thought there just were some ticky tack calls that, like you know, in a championship weekend, I want to see the players play. Uh, simultaneously, you have the NBA and you have LeBron James and a no call that was just flat out embarrassing for the NBA officials that took place over the weekend. And I and I just want to kind of check in with you as a sports fan. Where are you on officiating? in general in sports, and where are you with the championship weekend and your takeaways? Because i got to be honest with you. Like, you know, I had the, uh, we had the ranch dressing out. We had the broccoli and the cauliflower and the carrots. We had uh, little crackers, and we had pepperoni and salami, and then Grandma's sauce was cooking, and I made pasta, and the 8-year-old and I settled in, and, man, that game fell flat. <laughs> the NFC championship game was just kind of a dud. It was like the 4th of July when you open up the fireworks and you everybody's gathered around and you light the firework and nothing happens. 503-417-7575 is the number. Steven, what did you make of the weekend? Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that one. I think if the 49ers had a healthiest quarterback, it would have been a game because, I mean, it was 14-7 to uh, late in the second quarter. Then Josh Johnson drops that ball. Eagles turned into a touchdown 21-7 at the half. And, you know, I, I think for the 49ers, Josh Johnson, like, if he would have played, it still could have been a close game. Like, he's probably one of the better fourth-string quarterbacks in the NFL, I would say. I mean, there's not many fourth-stringers, but I think he's probably one of the better ones. But it, it is unfortunate um, that it did happen because it took all the air out of that game. I mean, just in the second half when Brock Purdy comes back into the game and there's just no throw in the football, right? It's just little dinks and dunks and little screen passes and reverses. It just was, oh, it was oh, just bad. Yeah, it yeah. was just bad, and it was over at that point, and there was no chance. But I think you're right. Like the 49ers, the defense played really well 
for just a terrible circumstance there. Christian McCaffrey had a nice game just in a terrible spot as well. So, you know, props to the 49 for, you know, somewhat keeping it close, I guess, for a little bit. But, yeah, no quarterback, no deal. And in the Bengals-Chiefs game, like, great game and everything. And I, I'm just sick and tired of hearing about the refs. Like, they're yeah. going to make mistakes. The games aren't rigged. Like, they're not rigging games for gambling. This It's not a real thing. That's not true. So I, I'm just tired of hearing about the refs. Like, the refs make mistakes, and it seems like they're always favoring some teams to some fans. I just don't see it. Like, there's bad calls both sides. They can make calls anytime they want. This is just what it is with sports. Like, there's going to be bad calls, and the refs don't have a narrative the NFL's not calling down to make it, you know, make the refs make a call to get the Chiefs in the Super Bowl or get the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Like it's not rigged. This is how it is. And it's just it's just very annoying to me that like a good game that was played now gets overshadowed by people complaining about the refs and you know things yeah. like that. So I, I just yeah. I don't like that. And and I'm leaving too because I got a bunch of you know look, I want to hear from you if you're a listener at 503-417-7575. I want your take on these games. But I also uh, I don't like Niner fans who are saying that the Eagles had an easy path. Like, that's why the Eagles are in the Super Bowl. No, and look, Brock Purdy getting hurt certainly pre- provided a mulligan. And having the Giants in the divisional round, yeah, it's easier. But they, they can only beat the teams that are in front of them. It's not their fault that, you know, that the Giants showed up. It's not their fault that they had the schedule that they had. Uh, give them credit. Like, you know, they won the game. They advanced. Uh, I was a little disappointed with Purdy during the game because – I was sitting there kind of yelling at my TV going, how bad could this be? How bad can this be? Can, can he get in? And I and I also wanted to see – I wanted I love that when they went to Christian McCaffrey on the flea flicker and had him try to throw a pass. Like, they were trying. I would have loved to see Christian McCaffrey and Wildcat and just give it a shot because they were just – they had no shot. They had no chance unless they were going to score on defense or special teams. So I thought it was a really disappointing – you know, NFC title game for the league in general. But I want your take. You know, you saw it. 503-417-7570. What's up, Steven? Yeah, real quick. I I think you are right, though. I think this could make a rule change in the NFL for at least the playoffs where they have an extra roster spot for the third quarterback. Like, I do think that is a thing because it was such a large stage, and the game just turned into be so disappointing because it just wasn't competitive, right? So I think they are going to – they could change a rule where, like, okay, we'll give you an extra spot for the third-string quarterback – just in case this does happen again. He has torn his ulnar collateral ligament. Uh, he'll be out six months. But, you you know, Jimmy Garoppolo broke his foot. Trey Lance uh, fractured his fibula. Yeah, I do think the NFL's got to look at some rule changes. And Clark Judge, who's coming on at 4 o'clock, he is uh, a legendary pro football writer. Okay, he's one of these guys who is in uh, who is a sourced at the highest levels of the NFL. If this is a rule that should be changed. Clark Judge will be able to speak to it at 4 o'clock. But I want your take on what happened in this game. Let's go out to Josh in Vancouver. Josh, tell me about your NFL weekend. John, it wasn't uh, it wasn't too bad. I didn't really have a, a rooting interest in, in either of the games. Although, uh, you know, I mean, I did like I, – I, I am a kind of a fan of Joe Burrow. I think he's a really good football player. And I do think he's in the conversation for better quarterback or best quarterback in the league right now. But first, I wanted to say to you, listen, as far as your Niners go, I don't think you're being a homer. You don't get all down to me like a Duck fan, right? Like, you don't sound like, you know, the guy that's just using the referees as the excuses and making every excuse in the book. Um, I do happen to think that if Purdy plays the whole game, the Niners still probably lose. I thought the Eagles' defense just looked faster. It didn't, you know, I didn't really think that the Niners came prepared on defense. They didn't really stop Philadelphia's running game. So, 
I understand that the injury to Purdy probably changes some of the dynamics a little bit, but yeah. I think ultimately right. it would have been a better game, more enjoyable, more enjoyable to watch. And then honestly, yeah. the complete off- Yeah, Josh, your phone's breaking up pretty bad there. I stayed with it as long as I could. But look, here's the here's the, the you know, the injury to Purdy is twofold. It hurts the Niners offense that can't move the ball. And B, it keeps the Niners defense on the field. And I thought the defense did a pretty good job in the first half despite the circumstances of holding Philadelphia. Uh and you know, again, you talk about the uh the big the big throw uh that that uh, Jalen Hurts made in the first half, you know, yeah, with hindsight being 20-20, that's not a completed pass either. I mean, that's the 49ers defense that might have held the Eagles to 7 or 14 points in the first half. I thought they were doing okay, but I think it's just too much when your offense can't move the ball and your defense has to be on the field for the length of time that it was on the field. I think it's it's in a really tough position. Mark's in Portland. Mark, what did you see? Well, you just took every word out of my mouth. <laughs> the uh... Uh, San Francisco's defense was was not the problem. It was their offense, and I mean, eventually, you just you just knew the when you saw the the next quarterback come in, you just knew that their defense wasn't going to be able to hold on. And I mean, they were still in the game at fourteen to seven until uh, the deer in the headlights dropped the perfect little snap right to him. He fumbled the snap, and that uh, I thought right then that was the end of the game. You just knew they didn't have a chance. And I, you know, uh, in the Cincinnati uh, game, I think, uh, I, I mean, the refs, the refs made mistakes, John, yesterday. Nobody can deny that. But I'm a guy that just thinks that they're part of the game. And Cincinnati had the football. All they had to do was get in field goal range to win that game. You know, Joe Montana, John Elway, those guys are going to get you the 30, 40 yards you need. And, you know, whether you like that last call or not, the player gave the ref the opportunity to make the call because the guy clearly shoved him yeah. Mahomes when he was out of bounds. So it was just a stupid mental unforced error that put them in, you know, field goal range to win that game. And But the San Francisco game, if you follow the, the year this year, you know that that wasn't the 49ers. And it's kind of like a a, jo- uh, a horse race with, and, you know, the jockey falls off the horse. you got no chance. <laughs> you don't have... We, San Francisco didn't have a quarterback. You know, they're talking about putting McCaffrey in. It was just sad to watch that a team with that kind of talent, um, you know, really didn't have a chance in that game without that. Yeah. You've got to have a quarterback. Yeah, I, and I think in the end, I think it's going to cause the NFL to look at the rules, the 53-man roster. Um, I want to hear from you. What was your experience watching the NFC and AFC championship games? Who do you like in the Super Bowl? And uh, when I talk about officiating in the NFL, in the NBA, where LeBron James not happy, uh, you tell me, do you trust it? Do you like it? I uh, generally shy away from blaming the officiating, but i got to be honest. I left the AFC title game going, man, uh, I wish they let the teams play. Two really good teams, two very evenly matched teams, and in the end the Chiefs go off to the Super Bowl where I think they're going to win it. But you tell me, 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, you heard what I thought of the NFC-AFC championship games, and I, you know, I like the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes. 
with a healthy ankle in the Super Bowl. I uh, I don't see Philadelphia stopping them at all. But uh, you tell me, what did you see over the weekend? Very disappointed with my Super Niners, who, uh, you know, I thought played as well as they could have with one arm tied behind their back, so to speak. But, man, uh, really a letdown. I had a lot of buildup. I was all stocked up. I was ready to go, and it was a dud. And uh, Gary and Tualatin, you tell me what you thought. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. Go Ducks. Uh, two of the worst games I've seen. Uh, first, you're set up for the Cinderella story, and Cinderella gets killed. Uh, and the second one, I don't know how many times I've told you, but flags in the last minute just drive me nuts, let alone on the last play. Yeah, you, throw, you can throw the flag, but no, no blood, no foul. Kick that thing from 50 and make and make it. But you, once that flag was thrown, that was the game. And uh, that's just infuriating. Yeah, I don't know that what do you do there, Gary, because it was, I mean, it's clearly a personal foul. He clearly well, hit he him out of bounds. He wasn't trying to hurt him. They're both going 20 miles an hour at a top speed. Uh, they're trying to catch their balance. There was nothing malicious about it. Uh, yeah, they went a long ways out of bounds, but the other guy got killed too. Uh, just let them, just, nobody was hurt. Uh, just hold the flag on the last play of the game for crying out loud. That, I didn't, that just I didn't ruins like it. the whole game. Why yeah, play I, the other 60 minutes? Yeah, but I didn't like it, Gary, but I, I, you can't, like, so the morning game, I'm lamenting that the 49ers lost their quarterback. I can't in the afternoon game go, hey, you can shove the quarterback out of bounds, but not if it's the last play, then, you know, it's a penalty any other time, but the last play, i got to let it go. I think it was really unfortunate that it ended that way. And I actually think if you're going to criticize the officiating, it was a couple of calls earlier, a couple of plays earlier, that the officials extended the drive for the Chiefs on kind of a ticky-tack, you know, foul down the field. I thought it was – I thought, you know, that's where the officials in my mind went wrong because I want to – look, great receivers on both sides, great defensive backs. Let them play. That's that's where I stand. Dre is in Portland. Dre, welcome back. Dre, I'm salty, man. That one hurt last night. That 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 hurt me, man. That that wasn't the Niners, and and I need everybody in America, everybody in the world, to understand that was not the San Francisco 49ers that you saw. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Oh, yeah. I respect Jalen Hurts. I respect the Eagles. They won. I get it. But I looked at the stats again. They only outpassed us by like 40 yards. We didn't even have a quarterback. Think about that. We did not even have a quarterback. I get they had 31 points. The defense was on the field the whole game. That was not the Niners, man. I normally don't get this upset over sporting events, but it messed up my whole Sunday. I wanted to see Jalen Hurts have to grind the game out because that's where it was headed. This was going to be a grinded-out game. Let me see if you can grind out a game against a tough defense, and we didn't see it. I'm not watching the Super Bowl, man. I'm going to wear my San Francisco 49ers jersey <laughs> and go to dinner and lunch with my family and have a good time. But i got to say, I'm going to be salty for a while, Jay. That hurt, man. Yeah, I think if they had any quarterback – that was passable, that was a game. I believe that, too. I, I, I do believe that. If, if we had anybody that could just stand back, control the ball, we just, 
it, it's just going to hurt, Jay, because that, that, that wasn't the Niners, man. That that wasn't what I signed up for. That was not what I planned. That that wasn't what I cooked the little weenies with barbecue and had <laughs> chips out and soda. I didn't, you know, my wife made cookies, man. I had two flags out yesterday. Yeah. I had on my Niners socks. That wasn't us, man. So, you know, next year, man. Yeah, Dre, Don't you know worry. what? I, I put the flag out on the porch, too. The 8-year-old, put we put the flag up. It's still out there. I left it. Mine, too. Mine, <laughs> I couldn't, too. I couldn't bear to go out there. <laughs> Thanks, Appreciate Jack. you. All right. Listen, uh, <laughs> he got the little weenies going. I don't know. Kind of a letdown. Peter Sampson, haven't heard from you yet. What did you make of the weekend? Uh, honestly, I don't understand about 90% of the complaining. Those games were... I mean, was the officiating perfect? No, but the officiating is that bad every single week. There was yeah. nothing different about the NFL this week, and that extends to LeBron in the NBA. The officiating is horrible in the NBA, but now that it happens to the Lakers, like we need to come together as a nation and have a conversation. No, we don't. It's just bad. So, uh, what do you think happened? What do you think happened on the LeBron play? Because I've I've watched it in in. It's funny to me on one hand to see a superstar who gets so many calls mm-hmm. not get a call. On the other hand. I'm going, hey, these guys aren't perfect. And uh, anybody who's ever tried to officiate a game or do your job, like, we're not perfect. We're humans. They're going to miss calls. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what happened. There's no there's no denying he got fouled. It was a significant foul. And uh, I do think maybe he's not getting every single call like he used to. But, again, that call, and to some degree, John, that call gets missed every single night somewhere in the association. Someone misses a call like that. So it's just... I don't understand why LeBron, who gets so much, now that there's been a couple weeks of, oh, you're just dealing with bad officiating like everyone else. Now he's, you know, jumping up and down and freaking out like his dog died or something like that. I mean, that was an intense reaction. But I just don't understand the complaining. I, I guess. But, I, but, I the, under- but the NFC game, it was a dud to me. Like, it was like, eh, it was a, it was over pretty much in the first quarter. And yeah. it was just a matter of, hey, can the Niners keep it close? And I didn't want to see that. I'd rather have seen, like, you know, any other team play that game and stay healthy and have it be a fun game. Like, I enjoyed the Bengals and the Chiefs game. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. It was very, very disappointing that, that Brock Purdy uh, got injured there because you, you knew at that point they were done. Even when, uh, you know, Josh Johnson came in, like, even before his injury, you knew that uh, they weren't going to be able to hang with with the Eagles. I mean, don't get me wrong, though. I, I don't think that the 49ers beat the Eagles even with Brock Purdy. I don't. I just think the Eagles were going to win that game. It's certainly closer. Don't get me wrong, it's not 31-7 to and the defense is out there for two-thirds of the game. But, I mean, ultimately, it was deflating, but especially the officiating. I just I just can't understand the, the belly aching I'm seeing across the Internet, you know, uh, and, yeah. and on TV about this. The thing on the officiating, it bothered me more in the Bengals-Chiefs game because I thought mm. it, was a, it was a closer game. And, I, I, you know, it's kind of like in college basketball or the NBA, I want in the finals – I want in the Western Conference Finals. I want in the Final Four. I want the officials to let them play. And, like, if it's pass interference, call it. But I don't want the ticky-tack stuff. And I feel like the officials, who are very good, I mean, these are all-star team officials that we're seeing at this level at this point. The officials are great. But I just don't want the game to be them to be the story. And I can't get away from that. And, you know, everybody's talking about it today. And I'm wondering, like, were they really that bad? Or is this just... 
you know, what people do in the wake of any kind of contest. But, I will watch the Super Bowl, yeah. But, John, Steven, what, was that last call on the Bengals really that ticky-tack? I thought it was no, fairly no, obvious. I, yeah, I thought it was obvious. I that felt earlier in the series, though, earlier in the series, they extended the drive a couple times with calls that I was like, eh. And even, you know, the guy they bring on uh, during the broadcast, who's their officials expert, he said, eh, you know, it's not one that I would have called. You know, it's a little bit, you know, it's, you know, but... But I get what they're doing. You know, it's the NFL figured out a long time ago that offense got people interested in games. Nobody wants to see, you know, the Ravens uh, play the Bengals in a 12 to nine game. Nobody wants that. And so the receivers down the field are really protected. Anything outside of five yards, any kind of contact, there's a flag, and the quarterbacks are protected. And you know, they're really trying to foster points. And I get that. And I guess this is kind of what comes with it. When Patrick Mahomes is driving late in this game, you know, it just takes a little bit of contact to get a flag and give him, you know, and he's so good. Like, the thing about him, like, I have no dog in the fight here. Patrick Mahomes is just so good, and so is Joe Burrow. But I thought Joe Burrow got outplayed a little bit in this game because after the sacks, he just, he wasn't the same for a stretch. I felt him giving up on the play a little early, throwing the ball into the dirt a little bit, and, you know, maybe... uh Maybe the you know it's easy for me to say here I'm not you know getting sacked four times in the first quarter, but I felt like Joe Burrow wasn't quite on yesterday. Dave is in the center. Dave, welcome to the conversation. Oh, thanks for having me, John. You bet. Yeah, the, the Bengal game was pretty exciting. Um, I didn't think that uh, it was that poorly officiated, but um, I could totally understand where people come from when I was watching the video. But uh, I actually am a uh, referee for uh, basketball, and I don't know. I I was a summer league game where it didn't mean anything one time, but I just wanted to do a test, and I was making a few for the other team to see if they get back in it, and it was like a twenty point swing. I mean, these were pretty good players, like uh, you know, high school seventeen, eight year olds. So I get it. I mean, the referees could really, if they wanted to, they can. The momentum is everything. Yeah, look, and I still think we got, you know, we it, the two healthiest best teams should be in the Super Bowl, and I feel like that's these are the two healthiest best teams right now. I think the, you know, Patrick Mahomes as long as his ankle is all right, that they're going to represent the AFC well. And Jalen Hurts and the Eagles, they are a team that has been on a tear this year, and they are very tough to beat. I love what they do offensively. And Nick Sirianni, the head coach, reminds me a little bit of Chip Kelly with what he does offensively and kind of how he sort of attacks. It's There's a lot of similarities there with him lining up to pretend to go for two and then seeing what the defense does. I mean, uh, for people who watch Chip Kelly and the Oregon Ducks over the years, I mean, I think you see a little bit of that flavor in the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, well, coming up, we'll talk about what the 49ers should do this offseason with their quarterback position. They have a conundrum. Do they uh, do they re-sign Jimmy Garoppolo or let him go? Trey Lance, is he the guy? You hand the keys to him? Do you uh, do you sign Brock Purdy to a, a longer-term contract and make him your guy? Or do you go fish uh, and chase uh, a quarter a veteran quarterback that you can plug and play? How about Tom Brady? Somebody like that. We'll talk about it coming up. Plus, punch it audio. Uh, at 4 o'clock, Clark Judge will join us. He is the best nationally on the NFL. He's a guy I've known for a long time. He is sourced. He'll tell us what's going on with the NFL, what he thinks of the Super Bowl, what he makes of the officiating, and whether or not we'll see some rule changes that come out of the NFC Championship game mess. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Coming up at 4 o'clock, Clark Judge will join us. Legendary NFL writer. He's fantastic. Hall of Fame uh, voter in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and a guy who's deeply connected uh, with the NFL and the uh, going-ons of the NFL. The goings-on or going-ons of the NFL. Uh, first of all, before we get into anything else, guys, what's your vote on what the Niners should do at quarterback? Do you uh, bring Brock, Brock Purdy back and hand him the keys? Do you uh, do you go with Trey Lance, your future, the guy you drafted high, way higher than Purdy in the draft? Jimmy Garoppolo's a free agent. Is he uh, somebody that you'd be interested in having back? Or do you uh, do what some nationally are speculating the Niners may do? Do you hand the keys to Tom Brady, who had to be watching that game going, if I was in there, uh, that team's in the Super Bowl? Uh, what do you do? I, I <laughs> The UCL c- kind of complicates things, but Stephen and I were talking just at the end of the last week. I, I think you got to go with Brock Purdy to start. I mean, you look at the cap hit. I mean, even Trey Lance, it's $9 million, which is reasonable, versus Brock Purdy at less than a million dollars. Because what's the key to winning in this league? It's having a cheap quarterback before you have to pay him and putting yep. other pieces around him. In theory, if you're willing to sort of jump in all the way, and it is risky, I mean, you have a lot of financial wiggle room if you're able to go with Brock Purdy. Yeah, I think it's Purdy or Trey Lance. Like, you got to try to continue with one of them because Peter's right. They're so cheap on that deal that that's why the four nines are so good. They're so loaded every other position. If you bring in a guy like Tom Brady or Derek Carr or somebody like that, like you're going to have to get rid of some players on the defensive side or some of your skill players. So I think the way the four nines are built, they can get to the NFC championship game with, you know, an average to an above average quarterback. And they've done that. They've got the Super Bowl, Jimmy Garoppolo. I think if you get Trey Lance or Brock Purdy, in there for a full season, I think they're right back in this spot again next season and maybe even the Super Bowl. I mean, they were the favorites going into the playoffs. Like, after the first round of the playoffs, they were the favorites in the NFC. I don't think they're that far off. The UCL does bother me, but I think you got to try it out with Trey Lance or Brock Purdy. Let me throw a wild card at you. And, and look, I would say this. I looked at the four teams that were playing yesterday in these games. The Niners had a relatively uh, modest, uh, modestly paid quarterback stable this season. Uh, Joe Burrow of the Bengals is still on his original deal. Uh, you have uh, Jalen Hurts, uh, who is economical as well. I mean, the, it's obvious that there are a couple ways to get to the Super Bowl. You have a Patrick Mahomes, somebody who is a difference maker at that position that can just carry your team and make some of those other positions not matter as much. Or you go with a guy who's on a rookie deal. And you load your defense up, and you load up your offensive line, and you have a much more balanced and complete football team. I mean, it's it's really interesting to kind of look at the playoffs and see what happened round by round and look at the quarterback salaries. All right, but here's the wrinkle. Let's say Tom Brady says, hey, I'll come play for the minimum. Does it change? Does it change the calculus? At that point, yeah. yeah. It does change it for me. I mean, if Tom Brady wants to play for a very cheap contract, I think that's okay because you're still not paying your quarterbacks. I think it's very important to not have to have that big salary contract on there. And, you know, Tom Brady is an upgrade over Brock Purdy. And we don't know about Trey Lance. He's been hurt his whole career, basically, or not placed. We don't know about that. But I, I think Tom Brady wants to come for a very cheap, good contract. I think that's good. Yeah, because if Tom Brady plays a 24th season with another team, it hurts the Buccaneers more than anyone from a salary cap standpoint because they will have $35 million of dead money on their cap. Uh, and $24 million of his remaining bonus prorated from 24 to 26, 2024 to 2026, 
that hits Tampa's salary cap on March 15th when uh, when the year's void off the contract. So they'll be hurt more than anybody by Brady. And so he reworked his deal before the season, it looks like. And, uh, you know, he walked away with $15 million uh, up front. And it looks like the Buccaneers would be hurt by anything. I kind of wonder if Brady just kind of cherry picks and goes, you know what, I either don't want to play. Is there a chance he says I don't want to play? Or is that, Do we all kind of believe Tom Brady's going to play one more year? 100%. 100% playing. Yeah. I So so he's got to look around and go, okay, where am I wanted? Where am I needed? Where do I plug and play? And, uh, and then the question becomes, like, I heard it today, one of the national guys saying, hey, Brady, Brady could take the minimum. He doesn't need the money. He's more interested in kind of the legacy and being in the right fit. I kind of wonder, at that point, how do you keep him out of camp? If And there are very few places that I think that that would not be interested in Tom Brady on the minimum for one, like one year, but San Francisco might be more ideally positioned than others to say, look, we're going to keep Brock Purdy, we're going to keep Trey Lance, we're going to let Jimmy Garoppolo walk away, we're going to replace Garoppolo with Tom Brady. And... You know, we'll get a year out of him and let these other guys grow a little bit. I, I, I think it's kind of interesting when you look at it. And I know Brady grew up in the Bay Area, and I've never, I've not been a Tom Brady fan. But, man, I couldn't help. My mind wandered to what is Tom Brady thinking right now watching this NFC Championship game, going, hey, they, that defense is really good. And I think and, if, if he leaves, why would he go to the AFC? Right, like yeah. I think the AFC is so much better. Josh Allen wasn't even in the AFC Championship game. You look at the NFC. I mean, there's a lot of young players that still aren't great. Right, you know, uh, Daniel Jones was in the playoff. Kirk Cousins was in the playoffs. Like Tom Brady's an upgrade over all those guys. So I think he has a much better chance of getting back to the Super Bowl if he stays in the NFC. There you go. Coming up, uh, I want to talk about the big splash. Uh, Punch it audio. We'll do it later in the show. Uh, Anna's coming along in the four o'clock hour. But so is the great Clark Judge. We'll talk some NFL. If you like football, stick around. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So I got a question for uh, my basketball people in the room. Um, when you look across the NBA, you see uh, Embiid and you see Giannis and you see uh, Jokic and Luka, and I'm talking about, like, this is a global game, right? Like, the players that are being developed internationally are really, really good. Uh, are we not doing as good a job as the European countries in developing players could you find five uh american-born players that could beat the best five foreign-born nba players like if you took wiggins and Embiid and Giannis and Jokic and luka could you could you find five players that would beat that those five in a game like are, are we losing out are we not developing are we asleep at the wheel i want to talk about that later in the show, but just your knee-jerk reaction when I throw that out to you guys. Uh, I think the foreign team would win right now. I don't know if that's you know going to be a trend going forward, but I think just currently that's how it is. And I think a lot of it has to do with the Instagram and Twitter culture of the NBA. Like, it, it's a deep-seated issue. Like, we're all about highlights, and we're all about, you know, the way 
I, and this comes up on my uh, Instagram algorithm all the time for these trainers that you know want to train people. And I find the videos so maddening and hilarious at the same time because they don't even know what they're talking about. Like they're just doing it and it's to highlight how to do a cool crossover or how to make yourself look cool when you dribble. But that's not even how you play basketball. Like the kids nowadays, that's what they want to do. They want to look good and have highlights and have uh, mixtapes out there. That's honestly not what basketball is about. It's about you know making the right play. And I think in the European countries, especially like they don't necessarily have that culture. Not yet, maybe maybe it'll come later. But I think right now for us in, in America, like that's just how it is for younger generations of basketball. And I think it's now going up into the NBA as those kids are becoming more adult. And it's more about uh, you know being the highlight and not necessarily caring about the game of basketball, but caring about outside of basketball. Where I think the European countries. They're now focused on just the skill set of basketball because you look at all those players like Luka Doncic, not a great athlete. Nikola Jogic, not a great athlete. Luka's somewhat explosive, but like he's not necessarily quick. He uses his body. He uses all skills. That's how he gets to the paint. Even Joel Embiid, for how athletic he is, he's a very skillful basketball player. The NBA guys just don't have that. You can even look at LeBron. He's not the most skilled basketball player. He's just bigger than everybody. I think Kevin Durant is one of the better skilled guys for like an American as you know, he's athletic, but at the same time, he scores with skill, and that's how he does it. I think we're falling back and behind on that. We're all about athleticism, and that's good and great, but I wasn't the most athletic player, and I could score on people because I was more skilled than them. I could figure out how to use my body and use my brain. I think that's how basketball is, and we're losing that. Losing that. Yeah, and it feels to me like, you know, this is this – is this like tennis, where hoops becomes a global game for the best players? Yeah, you know, it, we see this some more and more in golf and tennis. I kind of wonder as we're watching USA basketball and the AAU clubs and private trainers, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the Instagram fueled culture. Um, uh, it ends up being kind of a troubling trend at least we'll talk more about it later i want to know what peter thinks too let's talk a little bit about tom brady mike in portland's called in mike what's up man god john man i wanted to talk about tom brady but you brought up that basketball man and and i like that subject too man um go ahead yeah i want to talk on basketball though okay let's do it um the reason that uh american basketball players are at a, such a low level is that they're playing European ball. Now, you have to remember, European ball is a, is a ground type of basketball where they just shoot jump shots. Larry Bird played a little European basketball when he was in the NBA because he was just, he never left the ground. That's, what the Europe, that's how the Europeans play the ball. Uh, the basketball players nowadays don't attack the basket. When you're sitting out on the three-point line shooting three-point shots, you're not attacking the basket. Michael Jordan, the best ball player in the world, when he played the game, he was always attacking the basket. And he had multiple ways of scoring. Damian Lillard, when his jump shot is off, he can't score because he only he's one-dimensional. Michael Jordan had all kind of ways. Even those basketball players that played NBA back in the day had multiple ways to score. They don't nowadays. When you're talking about the European ball players are, are better because they're more, they concentrate better, they were concentrating better, back, I mean, more back in the day. Those ball players that the Europeans used to put against Americans, 
they were they were semi-professional ball players. Americans used to send the college players to the Olympics. They never sent the pros because back in the day, the college players, American players, was better than the European pros. So, John, they're playing European basketball today. If you want to get back to where basketball used to play, you got to go to the playgrounds. You got to go back to the playgrounds and get those guys out the playground. I bet you I could go to the inner cities and find five guys off the street that could outplay anybody in the NBA right today. So it's where you look. You know, they used to go to Africa and pull basketball players out of the bushes. You know, Akeem and and, uh, Mutombo and all those guys, they found them in the jungle. So the basketball players are out there, man. It's just that um, America then switched their priorities, man. Yeah. It's the entertainment I, I, now I, more I don't than. Think, I don't think you're going to find better players on the playground than you have in the NBA. I don't. But I do think there's something to the way the game is played in Europe and the way the game is taught in Europe and how players are developed. And – I think it's a it's a really interesting study. It's almost a book that someone could write about the first let's start with what Stephen brought up. The Instagram fueled culture in Sports Center is guilty of this too, where it's about dunks and dunking on somebody and, you know, hitting threes that are deep and it's not about playing the game the right way. Secondarily, um, I think there's a real problem with the whole club and AAU sports culture. And I've seen it firsthand in other sports. I think it exists in soccer. I think it exists, no doubt, in volleyball. I saw it. I think it definitely exists in in basketball and, in some respect, the seven-on-seven football programs that have popped up. And I think what you have happening is you have tremendously talented people who are playing for these clubs who are told over and over again what they want to hear and not what they need to hear as they're being taught the game. And I think you have a real allergy in the club and AAU, uh, you know, teams and programs. Uh, you have an allergy from the players and the parents themselves for being corrected or criticized or developed. And if you dare tell a talented player who plays for your club something they don't want to hear, you know what they do? They leave your club. And that doesn't help the club. And so what happens is you get in sort of this, you know, people used to joke back in the day about, players who were tremendously talented in basketball and football and other sports being passed along through the through the uh, public school system. And you'd find, you know, that, oh, this, this talented uh, quarterback, he can hardly read or he can, you know, he can hardly do math. And But he was passed along because he was a sensational athlete. Like, that has shifted, I think, a lot to the club scene where a really talented player who just dominated for one reason or another, maybe they were more physically blessed Maybe they were bigger and stronger and faster at a younger age. They get a lot more reps. They get a lot more coaching. They get a lot more opportunities to play against the best players. And in a lot of cases, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote that book, uh, you know, where he talked about the outliers. He talked about all the hockey players in the NHL. It's the same thing. Like, if you look at the birth dates of all the hockey players, you see all these hockey players that are born in February. And it jumped out to him, and he started looking into it. And he was like, why are all these players who were born in the month of February – 
so popular. Well, it turned out that was the cutoff date in junior hockey for the age divisions. And so the oldest players were get, were making the All-Star teams and playing for the best teams. And I think you have some of that going on in the United States with our club culture. I don't think we're really doing a good job. I don't think the clubs are doing, by and large, a good job of developing players. And I've watched it. There is a real desire from the clubs to win the games. And I get it. Everyone wants to win. But I watched that happen over and over at the expense of development of players. And clubs will say, oh, we're here to develop players. We're developing basketball players. We're developing soccer players. No, they're not. No, they're not. It, somebody in the club is trying to develop, but there are a lot of other interested parties who are interested in winning tournaments and winning games they and winning al- trophies. They also are developed in uh, making the money off of people, yes. too. Yes, it's a cottage industry. I mean, we talk about the money that is made on private lessons and private training, and I think there's a lot of good people coaching at the club level. I've met a lot of them, but I've also, within the same clubs, seen things happen that I'm literally looking at it going like that is like anti-development. They're literally in this to make money, as Stephen pointed out, and to win tournaments. And it makes me like I don't think that that's the case when you talk about the best European players. I think they were developed and they were coached and they were far more. I think the culture there is far more open to criticism and development and I think they're they're putting better players in the NBA, more well-rounded players in the NBA. Like, by and large, I see a lot of athleticism with American-born players, but I see better players. When you talk about that group of players that I mentioned coming uh, overseas and across the border. So let's keep an eye on that. And I think it could be a book for somebody who wants to write that book about, you know, the lack of development that we're watching. It's our fault, really. Leave it here. Clark Judge going to talk some NFL with us. He is fantastic on the NFL. You will tell me I'm right after you listen to him. He's next. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, I found myself thinking, you know, who do I want to talk to today? Do I want to talk with uh, somebody who knows the NFL? Yes. Do I want to talk with a Hall of Fame voter? Yes. Do I want to talk to a guy who has covered the NFL at the highest levels? A host on the Talk of Fame network. Hall of Fame voter. Diehard Tom Brady believer. And a Beatles fan, I think. Clark Judge is joining us as he has over the years. Thank you for making time. I appreciate it, Clark. You got it, John. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, although I grew up a Niner fan, so, you know, it was kind of a dud uh, watching that game. Yeah, it was a dud for anyone watching the NFL, I think. Um, they didn't have a chance once the quarterback went down, and I, I don't think I've ever seen a second half quite like that where they really didn't try to – they couldn't throw the ball downfield, never tried to throw the ball downfield. Um, it was a real anticlimactic performance by a team that had so achieved so much this year. And I felt it was sort of um, the circle of, of life, really. They, they started and ended the same way. They, they lost their quarterback at the beginning of the season, and they lost their third stringer at the end, and then their fourth stringer, and they go to Christian McCaffrey, 
they went through five quarterbacks or four and one running back, but it was a tough season, yet they really excelled in what they were able to do. And in the end, it was a non-fight. I mean, it's kind of tough to win a game when you don't have a quarterback. Does You know the league better than anybody, and you know how they think and, and what will be said, you know, Monday morning in the office. Clark, does does someone come in Monday morning going, we need to look at the 53-man roster and add QBs, or do they view it as that was an outlier, you know, it hasn't happened, and, you know, it's unfortunate that it did? No, they view it as an outlier, uh, honestly. They, they have their QBs. They, they had three, and then they had to add, add Josh Johnson as a fourth. There are some teams, and very few um, in the past, that carry two. But uh, Tyler recommended you carry three simply because of the, the beating quarterbacks take. But they had their starter, and it was Trey Lance. And then he bows out in the second game, I think it was. And then Garoppolo comes in. What do we know about Jimmy Garoppolo? He gets hurt a lot. That's why they drafted Trey Lance. But then they just take a flyer on this seventh-round draft pick, the last player in the draft, Mr. Irrelevant, and they find something. And he went through the entire Last end of the season in the playoffs, he you know starts seven, eight games, wins them all, and there was no hint of any injury until then. And honestly, it was a sort of freak thing. Except I'll be honest with you, and I said this publicly, I don't understand how any coach could leave a backup tight end to protect your quarterback against Hassan Reddick. I just don't understand that. I think that was a real coaching error on the part of Kyle Shanahan. What do you make of the Devonta Smith uh, replay? Eagles get up to the line of scrimmage. You know, um, mm-hmm. your 49ers wish they had that one back. But, you know, did that go down right in your eyes, or is there something that should else that should have happened? Well, I'm somewhere in between here. I'm not going to answer you on, on either side. What should have happened was, obviously, they should have called for a challenge. But when you saw the replays, I didn't see anything until they showed them a second time, and then I went, oh, wait a minute, I think the ball just moved. They should throw a challenge flag. By that point, I think the Eagles were up at the line of scrimmage, and I heard what Shanahan said after the game. There was no replay that he saw that anyone in their booth saw that indicated the ball had moved. I, I, I kind of find that hard to believe if, if I saw it and others did too, but it came at the tail end. So by that time, either the ball was on the verge of being snapped or had been snapped, but I saw it, and so did others, and I thought, well, I think I would throw a flag in there because that's a big play. I mean, it's a really big play, and yet other people are saying, you know, now we need another system here with the eye in the sky, a sky judge, where you get more like a college system. I can see that to a point, except there's no flow to the game then, John, and, that, and that's what we talked about, you know, for years. We've got to get more of a flow. They were stopping the game for everything. When we had the catch, no catch rule, it wasn't a catch. The guy had two steps, three steps. Couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And there was no flow to any game. And all of a sudden you realize the officials are the stars, not the players. The officials are making all the calls. So we got less of the officials being involved, which was more for the fans. They thought this was better. But in this case, yeah, I think something probably should have been done. Should have been done by the head coach. And honestly, if, if um, I were in that position, and I wasn't sure, the minute a receiver jumps up and starts saying, line up immediately, there's your telltale sign. If he believes that they're going to find something, probably did drop it. Clark Judge with us, uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame voter, longtime NFL writer. Uh, Tom Brady being bantered about is the missing piece in San Francisco. Does he fit in your mind? No, I don't think so. They've had chances to 
sign him before, at him before. He wants to go there or has wanted to go there because that's the team he grew up loving when he was living in San Mateo, and then he went to uh, many games when he was there. But it, it, he's not going to be the guy. They, they've got two young guys on their roster. That's him. Three, but I mean, Garoppolo's not that old. Garoppolo's not going to play there next year. We know that. He'll be a free agent. But you got Trey Lance, who they mortgaged the future for, and now you've got Brock Purdy. And the question is, well, who do they start next year, or do they go out and get an Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady? To be Brady's off the table. Aaron Rodgers, possible, but a long shot. I mean, he's not a young guy. He's uh, 39, I think, at this point. He went to Cal across the, the, the water, he, he across the bay. He wanted to play for the 49ers. Instead, they drafted Alex Smith. I was there when that happened in terms of being at the draft, and I remember covering Aaron Rodgers. He was livid. And I saw him years later in Green Bay and brought it up to him again. He was still livid. So he really wanted to play there, and, and that may be something he tries to angle for. But I don't see the front office going for it. First of all, it's going to cost you draft capital that you probably don't have. Why? because you mortgaged the future when you drafted Trey Lance. Well, what do you know about Trey Lance? We really don't know anything. He didn't play his rookie year. I mean, he played in two games, but kind of got in there um, for brief periods. And then he started the season in Chicago, lost it, and then got hurt. And that's it. We've got a very brief snapshot of him in two seasons. But there was enough there that I know in and around that organization, there's some questions about him. Remember when Joe Montana in this offseason said, this guy's not ready. From what little I saw, and I'm not a scout, but I'd say the same thing. He's not ready. I'm not sure what they saw to make them so infatuated with him. That said, you've seen Brock Purdy. He carried you through the end of the season, carried you into the playoffs. He didn't lose. And honestly, in my mind, he didn't lose that game yesterday either. Didn't play long enough. So you've got a guy who's taking you to a conference championship game versus someone else that you mortgaged the future for and you believed in two years ago. What do you do? And, and my point is what you do is you opt in favor of the guy that you know. The guy that you know is Brock Purdy. With Trey Lance, he's probably not going to sit on that bench for long. You could, you could probably trade him for more than one draft pick at this point. There's someone else, if you believe strongly in him, probably there are others that do as well. And he's a young guy who's got a future ahead of him. It doesn't seem in my mind to be in San Francisco just because of what I've seen for Brock Purdy. But in answer to your initial question, no, they had enough coordinates. They had three. I mean, everyone carries three, basically, most everyone. Um, so they had three, and then they got Josh Johnson. They covered themselves. Just a freak thing. It's really a freak thing. Do you like the matchup in the Super Bowl? Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, Jalen Hurts <laughs> and the Eagles. Yeah, I do. There's so many storylines there. The Kelsey's, Andy Reid, Philadelphia. I mean, there's a lot of storylines there. Um, I was hoping for Philadelphia and Cincinnati because those were the two most complete teams out there in my mind. I'd still say that. Um, that doesn't mean that the Bengals should have won yesterday. They were beaten by a better team. Kansas City played a better game than Cincinnati. It wasn't the Bengals that we saw the week before for whatever reason. They were on their heels, and I understand what your listeners would say. They're on the heels because the defense they played was much better. Yeah, it, 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 it was yesterday, but really shouldn't be. Um, they were ranked 31st in red zone defense, and yet when the Bengals got down there to the goal line, they couldn't score. I mean, they had two field goals there um, and couldn't score. So um, then they then when they tied up late in the, you know, in the game, they, the, the Chiefs made the stops, and they got the sack, and they got the sack that Buffalo couldn't the week before. All that said, I'm one of those who was – appalled by the officiating, to be honest with you. But I was appalled by the officiating throughout 
yesterday's games. Not just that one, the game before, too, um, the San Francisco game. Neither crew decided what happened in those games. Neither crew made one of those teams win. Both the teams that won should have won. But I would think the NFL might take a long, hard look at what that rolled out yesterday and say, we need to do a better job of calling these games if these are the best crews that we're putting out there. What does that mean for the Super Bowl? I mean, if these are your best crews for the championship game, I mean, how much better is the crew going to be for the Super Bowl? I, I, much better? It better be because there were so many calls that were missed and then calls that were made there. You go, what? I mean, I just, I, I, I think the NFL had itself a problem yesterday. The problem is that instead of talking about Patrick Mahomes and the Eagles today, Many people talk about the officiating crews. Yeah, and I, I keep coming back to that. Do you think the officiating is improving about the same? Is it uh, under more scrutiny because of uh, our ability to uh, very quickly react and social media plays a role? Sure. What do you see when it comes to the yeah. officiating? Well, I, I think it's um, under more scrutiny because of social media and also because of replay. I mean, we're stopping things frame by frame by frame. But you didn't need to stop anything frame by frame by frame to notice that the Eagles' right tackle, Lane Johnson, was moving before the ball was snapped. I mean, I kept looking and going, am I missing something? Where are the flags? He, he's standing up before that ball snapped, and they didn't call it. Called it. And then when someone did break it down frame by frame, you realize, boy, this is pretty blatant. But I've seen it before this year, John. I really have. I, I think it was the Chargers. The right tackle was watching the game, and I thought, He's moving before that snap, yeah. and they weren't calling it. And I know there was a um, movement several years ago to say, listen, unless it's egregious, let it go. I mean, because we're having too many stoppages, let it go. And generally that was with holding calls, and it made the games move faster, which the NFL wants, and there was more of a, of a flow to the game, which the NFL also wants. And so does fans. But there are things like that. It, if you're going to let that go, then don't tell me that something else, which isn't quite as noticeable, that you're going to call. You, it, to me, the thing that I want and everyone wants is consistency. And that's what we don't have now, especially, I think, with pass interference. I don't know what pass interference is because some crews call them differently. And I'd say, honestly, if, if I were to address this, what I'd probably do is instead of having these all-star crews, which is what they have, They'll take the, the best referee at that point and then pair him up with um, a top line judge, a top back judge. But their guys haven't worked together. I'd simply take that referee's crew that he's worked with all year and have him work the Super Bowl. I have him or work the playoffs, I'm sorry, but work the playoffs. Instead, they get these all-star crews that haven't really played or, or coached or officiated together. Um, but um, keep them intact instead of throwing these guys together for a weekend and, and let him go at it because um, consistency is everything. And you're never sure what they're going to call now. I mean, there was a play yesterday where Burr was pushed to the ground. I realized it was a push to go. It was not a big deal. But uh, it was, I think it was Frank Clark. It took like four steps and then shoved him. Well, the rule is you can't take two steps and do it. Took four and then shoved him to the ground, and Burr throws up his hands and like, what was that? Well, that was my question. What was that? Um, there was a hit out of bounds when the – Bengals were driving at the end of the first half, and it said, well, that's a penalty, and they didn't throw a flag, and it was at least as bad or as egregious as the Mahomes one at the end of the game. But one was called and the other one wasn't. So why is that, and why is there that inconsistency? That's what 
the NFL needs to address. We're talking to Clark Judge, uh, fantastic NFL writer and reporter, also a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame committee. Uh, I was looking at the list of the semifinalists for the class of 2023. Uh, what jumps out at you at this class? And, and maybe can you just tell our audience just a little bit, Clark, on this process when it, you know, 129 gets whittled down to it looks like uh, like 15 or 19 at this point, and what happens next? Okay, so we have 15 modern era players that are finalists at this point. Modern era is defined by 20 years or less um, time after your retirement. So if you're if you've been retired, you know, 25 years, so you go into a different category. It's called the senior category. And so um, what you do is take that uh, first list, which is a um, preliminary list of 129, whittle down to 25 semifinalists, and then to 15 finalists, modern era finalists. And the reason you said 19 is because we have two other separate categories, one of which is the senior category for those who've been out 20 years or more. And, and, and those guys used to be one a year, two a year. Now it's three a year, so there are three that it's 18. And then you have another coach-slash-contributor category, which is the first year in existence, and that would be for anyone who's obviously a head coach, assistant coach, or you say contributor, owner, scout, GM, someone's a non-player. So those are your 19. That's one each year. They're your 19. So those, let's just take the coach contributor and the seniors off the board. The 15 modern era players are discussed via Zoom call, which we've been doing since the pandemic, by the board of 49 voters. And they're whittled down to 10 uh, and then to 5. And so we discussed the 15 with a presentation made on behalf of each one of those 15. And then a discussion afterwards. It could be as little as five minutes. could be as long as 50 minutes. But um, it is a discussion. And then at the end of all 15 presentations, there's a vote. And the vote is we've got to cut it to 10. Then we get to 10, you got to cut it to 5. And 80% or more qualifies you once you get into 5 to make it as a Hall of Fame enshrinee. So um, we've met. To be honest, we've met. And, and so... Um, it, it, we cut it to 15, to 10, to 5, and, and now you have to decide, you know, uh, who's, who's going in and who's not. That hasn't been revealed. But it's done each year uh, before the Super Bowl. It used to be the day before the Super Bowl, John, but because of the pandemic, we stopped that, so we do this remotely. But in terms of the seniors, the three seniors and the one coach contributor, that's an up or down vote. Um, there's no whittling down there. The three seniors are presented, they're voted on, the contributor, coach, is uh, presented, voted on, and then at the end of the day, they'll say whether it's up or down. They have to get 80% of the vote. If they get 80% of the vote, they're all in. I mean, it, and it doesn't mean 80% of all. It's each one. If each individual gets 80%, they're in. If none of them get in, if none of them get 80%, then none of them get in. So we know we have at least five modern-era players who will be enshrined in 2023, and we should get, and we will get, I'm pretty sure, um, three seniors and one coach contributor. Give me an idea when, because I know there's a presentation, and I think famously the Joe Montana presentation was Ira Miller standing up and saying Joe Montana and sitting down. But how how much discussion, how fierce does that discussion get among the among the uh, voters? Depends on the candidate. Um, with Joe Montana, there was no discussion. That's the same thing with Brett Favre. 
uh, Paul Doherty from Green Bay stood up and said, I've got a speech here and a presentation. Why am I doing this? Brett Favre, and he sat down, and he got a standing ovation. That was it. No one, that was <laughs> move on. Saves us time. But then you'll get others, and the two that I can think of off the top of my head, most contentious, uh, Paul Tagliabue was one of them, and that went close to an hour, and Terrell Owens was another one, and that went close to an hour. Both times, I mean, not both times, but more than once, because they were presented more than once. And and there were um, people staunchly in the corner of, for one guy and staunchly against that same candidate, and it was a knockdown, drag-out battle. They both got in, as we know. Uh, Tagliabue got in with a class of 2020. That was a centennial class. But that wasn't the Hall of Fame board. It was a board of, I think it was 25 members, uh, some of whom were Hall of Fame voters, but they had broadcasters, coaches, um, some GMs were in there too. But um, anyway, he got in, and then Owens got in, I think, on the third vote. So, um, but those are the two that, that I think of off the top of my head. And they were emotional. They were, they were very emotional discussions. Yeah, and I think, you know, we had Tom Flores on this show a couple of times over the years. As he was, he was uh, repeatedly, you know, trying to make his own case and saying, I don't understand it. And I know it was, it was really important to him. Um, you know, when you guys do elect a guy like Flores, as you did, um, you know, the feeling in the room has to be, you know, one of, hey, he's passed, he's, he's made it through all these rounds, all these years, he's worthy of it. I think it's a better process than the Baseball Writers Association, which I'm a member of, Clark, because I think that process is, it just feels so haphazard all the time. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I agree with you, but but yeah, you agree because you're on that board. Uh, yeah, that's part of it, I guess. But it does work better because you're in the room and you're all trading information. And there'll be people, they'll say, geez, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Oh, I didn't understand that. And it's, by and large, it's a really knowledgeable room with uh, specific members sort of singled out that really have done their homework on this. And there, and there are many of them, but they know things that others haven't heard of or they haven't been reported. And, and I felt that way about this year's coach, coach contributor candidate, and that's John Coriel. I covered him. I fought for years for him, and the fact that he got proposed this year, and I'm on that committee, the coach contributor committee, I fought for him with other guys. Dan Pouch is on that committee. And the fact that we got him now to this group so that he can be voted up or down was such a long, grueling process that goes back years. We felt about him as, as others have about Tom Flores, and honestly I felt for Tom Flores and others as well, that we we got it right. I mean, we finally got it right. My goodness. I mean, it, you know, people not Coriel because he, he didn't get to a Super Bowl. He's three and six in the playoffs. And I say, well, if that's the case, I mean, why'd you put George Allen in? Why'd George Allen in? He had a two and seven playoff record. He got to the Super Bowl, but he lost it. So, you know, don't tell, tell me it works for one, doesn't work for the other. And you can get those kind of emotional debates. And, and at one point, I didn't think Don or Tom would, would make it. And, and I hope Don makes it here uh, next week, but, but Tom did, and he did it for all the right reasons. And, and you talked to him before on the show, and I, I know how he felt because I've heard it before. But, John, that's how most, if not all, of these guys feel. It, it's, a, it's a life changer. It really is something that is so different, and it's changed me in one way in that I feel I'm doing something more valuable now than I was when I was coming to the 49ers or the Chargers yeah. or the Colts. Um, I, I feel like you, you have an ability to have an impact on somebody's life. And when I first started this, I said, my wife, if there's nothing else that happens while I'm on this board, 
I hope Ray Guy gets in, and, and hope I can be influential in getting him in, because I do not understand why he's not in. And, of course, he did. We got in 2014, and should have. But why you had to wait that long, I, I don't know. But when it happened, I, I did understand the impact it had on him. And, and he was kind of honest. He was kind of bitter, because he said, should happen a long time ago. My mom and dad are dead. I mean, they should have enjoyed this with me. Of course, Ray's gone now, too. But, you know, a guy like Kenny Stabler, uh, he got in after he died, and Don's up now. I mean, I would love to see Don get it. And he passed away. It's so tough to watch that happen. And last year, I fought man, hard with some other people for um, an official, a, 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 a longtime officiating candidate who finally, finally got in. But it, it, it just had, it was years and years ago and, and just took forever. And, um, and then he passed away. Uh, winter, and you go, oh my God! It, 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 at least he had a chance. At least he had a chance to know that he got in. And but it was mom and seven, and, and um, but the fact that he, when you see how it has an impact on him, um, you know, it, it, it just it, it's a it's a big deal. And so it, it, I agree with you. I think I think we got it right, but the process does need to be tweaked. Honestly, to have everyone in the same room, I think is great. Clark Judge, you're the best. Thank you for giving us your time. You got it. Take care. Thanks very much. Take care of yourself. There he is. I mean, he's so right. When we bring on a guest who's a member of the Hall of Fame, how do we introduce him? Pro Football Hall of Famer, and we fill in the blank. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. is a perfect time to talk about Brittany Mahomes, the wife of Patrick Mahomes. Uh, she is uh, in the spotlight again. She is trolling. She is uh, fired up about the Chiefs advancing to the Super Bowl. But, um, uh, Anna, what do you make of Brittany Mahomes? Is this uh, embarrassing? Is this immature? Is it annoying? Is it goofy? Or... Is she just fired up and supportive of her husband? All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right. So uh, Brittany Mahomes, wife of Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, goes on Twitter to throw shade at Cincinnati right after the Bengals' loss. She said, Cancun on three. Yeah, I saw that tweet. It got 2.3 million views. A lot of people uh, upset at her and other people saying hey she never she hasn't done one damn thing on the field why is she even talking right now steven and peter does it bother you if Brittany Mahomes is part of the news cycle uh doesn't i don't it doesn't bother me um what do you make of it i i mean i have a theory about Brittany Mahomes and patrick Mahomes, and i don't know this to be true this is my theory um so they met in high school right so they met them when they're really young so patrick can trust her with all the money and all the fame and all that kind of stuff, and she just kind of you know turns a blind eye to everything else because there's no way that a guy like Patrick Mahomes, who is this awesome, would deal with the antics that she does, where she's throwing <laughs> champagne on people like in the crowd. She making like she's out there in the news. I don't think a guy like Patrick Mahomes would want to deal with that, but he can trust her, right? Like they've known each other for so long, and so I do think that's my that's my theory and my take on Brittany <laughs> yeah. Mahomes. 
Um, That's interesting. Yeah, so I just uh, I don't I don't have a problem with it. So like she's grandfathered in. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I, I, like I don't care that she's she's not in my news cycle. She's she's not in my algorithm, so I don't really care. I don't Do you think it. the people taking shots at her, like you know, there's a bunch of different websites and such that are kind of picking on her a little bit. Is it is she fair game? Has she elevated herself to being fair game? Because you normally wouldn't talk about some player's wife without it being poor form. But has she injected herself into this conversation in a way that um, she deserves the criticism? Yeah, 100%. This is what she wants. Like, any anytime you put out something on social media, like, you kind of you, – you're running the risk of – Someone's going to judge that and make fun of you for it. So I think uh, I think it's one hundred percent okay to do that. But the, you know, the Cincinnati mayor taunted the Chiefs. The Chiefs, I mean, taunted the uh, yeah, he taunted the Chiefs, and then they called it Burrowhead, and they talked trash after beating Buffalo. Uh, and Eli Apple smoked a cigar, and Burrow made his ticket refund comment, and all she tweeted was Cancun on three, and she's the villain, like. Well, isn't she just playing the game? That isn't all she tweeted. I mean, she, <laughs> she's uh, pretty vocal on the old Twitter. So she puts herself right in the spotlight with some inflammatory statements. And, I mean, come on. If you're going to put yourself out there and say those things, it's like we tell the kids. You can't, you, you can't dish and then not take the heat, right? There you go. Uh, by the way, speaking of... Peter, what do you make of Brittany Mahomes? First of all, I uh, haven't even. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible answer to say I don't care, but like, <laughs> no, she could do whatever she wants. It's obnoxious, but I just turn a blind eye to it. I, I literally don't care. But I do hear sort of tangentially in my life, like, oh, she's at it again. I, she's just trying to get attention, like everyone it, else in the yeah. world. And I think we all love to see success stories, but it kind of like Patrick Mahomes is at the point where he's had enough success. He's like Tom Brady. He's had his fun, and now it's. I think it's more fashionable to root against him. But I have literally seen Chiefs fans tweet, "I love Patrick Mahomes. I can't stand his wife." Like I've never seen that before with any athlete. Uh, Jason in Portland last week. Remember Jason in Portland, the diehard Eagles fan. Well, he had a big uh, dilemma. Does he uh, coach his son's youth basketball game, or does he? Does he uh, skip at the game and watch the Eagles-Niners in the NFC title game? He's called back in. What did he do? Find out next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So last week, uh, Jason in Portland called in. He had a conundrum. He had a dilemma. There was no easy way out. There was no uh, answer that made total sense. But he's a diehard Eagles fan, and he also is the coach of his 12-year-old son's youth basketball team. He's an assistant coach on the team. They had a tournament on Sunday in Salem, and it happened to be tipping off at the same time as the NFC Championship game. He called into this show to get some help. Our listeners overwhelmingly said, go coach the game. Tape, uh, coach the basketball game, tape the NFC Championship game. I don't know if he listened. What do you think he did, Anna? He's he's called back in. What do you think he ended up doing? I think he probably coached the game. He probably coached the game. Steven, think he coached the game? Yes. <laughs> I don't feel good about it. I'm not confident, but yes. Not confident. Jason in Portland calling back in. Jason, take us through Sunday. How conflicted were you after uh, you uh, visited with our listeners? Did we help you at all? Where did you end up? 
Well, you guys made it much more difficult. And uh, first off, fly, Eagles, fly. Secondly, uh, Barlow Bruins, go Bruins. Uh, the boys won the first two games on Saturday, so that meant we played at 150 on Sunday. So uh, luckily the wife drove me down uh, I, at, right at 12, and I was watching on my phone. And uh, we pulled up right about halftime, walked into uh, the facility feeling pretty good, and realized I didn't get any reception inside the building. So uh, if, if the game was closer, I would have probably been on pins and needles, but I felt that the Eagles were uh, going to win the game. So it made the, made the uh, decision a little bit easier, which is great. Yeah, we were supposed to help you out, and we overwhelmingly told you the right thing to do is what you ended up doing. How could you not say we were a big part of your solution? You were. Anna actually was the one that, that really stuck in my mind, and it was funny because I was at a party Saturday night, and I was talking to a bunch of diehard Niners fans and Seahawks fans, and they said that I was crazy to not be sitting in front of my TV watching the game. Yeah. And uh, what, what Anna said and what a lot of the uh, what a lot of the listeners stated was was right on and and uh, honestly the third game uh my son we were down by 10 with four minutes left and my son hit a three with mm. 40 seconds left to tie the game we ended up winning by one and going to the championship game See? no and, way uh, and unfortunately Tualatin had a little bit more oomph and uh you know you bring up the uh subject of of youth basketball and uh, unfortunately, the the refereeing wasn't the best, and mm. that's another subject and another day that I could talk about for hours but and hours. Good about, lesson. Uh, good lesson for the kids to learn that you know absolutely. not everything goes absolutely. your way. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what we taught the kids. And uh, hats off to Swallowton, but uh, go Barlow. They did well, and uh, really proud of them. And, and what was that uh, nugget of wisdom that I offer that stuck in your head? She wants to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, when you stated that uh, the kids, if I was, would I be upset if, or, um, you know, disappointed if the kids chose the game over their team, and that was uh, that's kind of what stuck with me, and you know, it, it was it was really rewarding to see how yep. well they've been playing lately, and uh, to see my son uh, succeed. Uh, he, he twisted his ankle uh, mm-hmm. on the on the uh, defensive end and was hobbling I said hey suck it up and he ran down to the corner they passed the ball he shot it and made it and amazing how quickly that uh, cured that yep. ankle so there you go hey uh, you made the right yeah, call yeah. your 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 kids never going to forget that you chose him over the Philadelphia Eagles for this game so good on good on you for that you were a good dad and now it's going to be tough for the Super Bowl now John that's <laughs> the problem you <laughs> don't even get me started the Super Bowl <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I appreciate you calling in and sharing the follow-up. I was wondering what happened. I'm glad I'm glad you went to the game. Yes, yes, me as well. Right. I appreciate the advice. And, uh, like I say, go Eagles. All right, there he is, Jason in Portland. Um, look, he went looking after he talked to us, trying to find somebody who would tell him what he wanted to hear. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And later in the evening, when I was surrounded by four mirrors that I assembled in my living room, I had four guys tell me I should go to watch the Eagle game. It was like it was like Voidir. He was looking for a different jury of yeah. peers. Yeah, I need a mistrial. Here, this is a mistrial. Uh, we'll, we'll go on. Hey, I look, I, I had a friend tell me who was listening to the show. He was out of state. He's listening to the show. He says... 
gosh, if my kid's 12 years old and still wants anything to do with basketball, I am at every one of his games. How is this even a question? I, I kind of I'm in that camp. No, but I get it. Like, look, I even just appreciate that there was a dilemma, right? I appreciate that he was willing to call in and be authentic because it takes some vulnerability to call in yeah. and, you know, and throw that out to the audience, right? Sure. I, I, yeah. I, I applaud that. Yeah, we gave him the right answer, though. I mean, <laughs> you know, I felt really good. I felt like we kind of did like a group there. That was like a... That was like a dad's group that got together and said, all right, here's a situation. Now we're on to the next dad. It was, but don't you think it's easier for people to dispel that kind of advice when they're not the ones in the situation? 100%. Because when you're in the situation, it's emotional to you. You don't really see the logic of it, and that's why he called in. But I felt like after we gave him all this wisdom (laughs) that day, I mean, that's why Stephen was going, I'm not sure what he did. Because when he got off the call, I was like, see, there you have it. It's a knockout. This is it wasn't a split decision really. I wonder what would happen if the game was close. Like if he if he was watching the game was close, Brock Purdy doesn't get hurt. What does he what does he do well, in that situation? I, the Eagles lose. We know that. Right. But, but does like, he <laughs> does he like watch it on the bench or something? Uh it, it probably would have been a lot harder. He probably would have been like, Does anybody know where the uh, custodian is? I need the Wi Fi password. I gotta go to the bathroom here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he said there was no uh cell service in the building. <laughs> He was in a bunker, That's apparently, in Salem. That's true. I feel like John Quinones should have come out. What would you do? What would you do? Like, this is the, this is the dilemma. <laughs> Diehard Eagles fan in the gym. We've removed all cell service. You know, uh, I, I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad his kid hit a shot. I'm glad his team won, I guess. In the end, um, good parenting wins. Yeah, we're here all day, folks. Other uh, parenting dilemmas, just call on in. We and the other listeners of the show are here to help you. I don't know if they're all... Free of charge. Frankly, first of all, because he said your bit of wisdom was the uh, thing that really rung true to him. His actual words were, they stuck in his head. Yeah. Those were his actual words. Yeah, the things that stuck in his head came from you. I'm never going to hear the end of that. Yeah. Secondarily, I don't think that the other parenting questions are going to be quite as easy. Like, I think that one was, I mean, that one was pretty clear to me. Mm -hmm. You know? I've been in that situation, and my job is to cover sports. I've been in that situation where it's like, do you go to this important event for your kid, or do you go to the, uh, you know, to the game that you're interested in or need to cover? And I have often you know, wiggled my way out of the work thing and gone, you know what, this is way more important. And because there's enough, like, who's going to remember that he wasn't there to watch the Eagles? Nobody. And the important thing, too, is that even if his kid's team had lost, it was still valuable that he was there. Like, it's fortunate that they won. And his son played a key role. Well, we can talk about what we want. I can just tell you that his kid, somewhere down deep, is going, my dad picked me. That's that's super valuable. Yeah. Until leave the Super Bowl. Yeah, leave it here. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty, the game. Pac twelve presidents and chancellors met today on the campus of Arizona State University. Uh they are uh they discussed, I guess because the meeting's already over. They discussed uh, a variety of matters, including media rights and some other things that uh, pertain to the conference, possible expansion, other things. This was their uh, 
quarterly meeting that usually takes place in March. They moved it up to late January because they will meet again in May. Um, I think it's an important meeting. I uh, was told by one of the athletic directors in the conference that the ADs joined for part of the discussions via Zoom. My hope is that they'll find some focus in the meetings today, and they'll come out of it uh, ready to uh, get this media rights thing done and get about being a sports conference again. I wrote about it at johnconzano.com. I hope you check it out. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you obviously works for me. But uh, I had a couple of quick takeaways on this, if you don't mind. Um, number one is um, it it's becoming more and more evident that the Pac-12 networks will probably not exist in their current form moving forward. They moved out of the San Francisco uh, offices to a production facility that is south of San Francisco in San Ramon, uh, right off the uh, 680 freeway, and uh, they have, uh, you know, obviously committed to do it to you know to producing content, but the fact that they're not going to replace the Pac-12 Network's president, Mark Shukin, who was fired about a week ago, 10 days ago, tells me that they're probably, uh, the future of the network's probably changing hands, probably selling it, maybe getting out, I don't know. Maybe they're leasing it to Amazon, I don't know. But it becomes clear to me that they're, I think they're moving away from the media company business model that they have been immersed in. Like, it's evident, like, you ask anybody who's good at something, who's really good at something, uh, you know, and they'll say, oh, I put all my energy and my focus into this thing, like Michael Jordan basketball, uh, a, a, you know, a rated chess player who's a world champion, chess. Um, you don't often find them going, you know what, I'm not just a basketball player, but, uh, you know, in Michael Jordan's case, he did take breaks from basketball to go do baseball and other things. But he wasn't good at him. He wasn't a great baseball player. He, you know, he's, he's not a great golfer. He's a really good golfer for a guy who's not a professional golfer. But Michael Jordan was, this is his thing that he was specialized in, was basketball. Um, you don't see, like, you know, you, I always bring up this comparison. You go into a uh, Mexican restaurant that you really like, and you look up at the menu, and and you'll see uh, like a carne asada burrito or chili verde or something you know that you really enjoy and then you'll see hamburger at the bottom you don't order the hamburger at a mexican restaurant you don't do it you know you you go with the food that they specialize in at the restaurant you don't dabble outside your lane you don't do it and yet the pac-12 for a decade has tried to be a great sports conference and simultaneously hey we're also a media company no you're not and if you're trying to be a media company, I wonder about how distracted you are from being a conference. And so part of my point today and what I wrote online, I hope you got the point, was I feel like this is a conference that needs new focus. It needs to get back to being an athletic conference and being good at that. You don't see the SEC trying to go, you know what we should do? We should make computers. No, they're making championship football programs. They, You know, you don't see... The Big Ten Conference go, you know what we should do? We should also be a media company. No, they let someone else handle that. So, you know, I think the Pac-12 Networks is going to end up either with ESPN or Amazon. I think the Pac-12 will still produce content. They have leased out a facility. They're going to stay in the production business to some extent. But I don't think they're going to be in the same 
business that they were before. And I think this is good. Apple Computer, I brought up the point in the piece today, the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, it was quoted a couple years ago as saying, you know, all the products we make, we can put on one table. Like, literally, if you had a big table in the middle of the Apple store, you could put the Apple Watch there, you could put the iPad there, you could put the MacBook, the MacBook Air, you could put the uh, desktop computer, you could put the I new iPhone there, and you got a lot of room left over. They specialize. This is what they do. They do products, and they do them well. That's why they're successful. You don't see Apple going, you know what we should do? We should have a football team. No. You stay in your lane. Don't order the hamburger at the Mexican restaurant is what I'm saying. So I think the Pac-12 needs to get back to being a great conference. Am I out of line there? No, you're not out of line. I mean, I'm curious about what the initial thought was. I know Larry Scott talked about how we're a media company, but, you know, I don't know if, like, the big push for that was to generate a new revenue stream. It was. And I don't know how successful that, that necessarily was. The product is good. You know, we've yeah. watched it. And but the problem is that you can't really get it the distribution in many is a nightmare. places. Yeah. So it's you know it's like if a tree falls in a forest, does anyone hear it? It's like if you can have a great product, but if nobody can see it, you know how effective is that really? They had distribution problems from the beginning, and they they did a really good job of making it look good, but they poured money into it like none else. But that's part of them not being a good media company. Like they weren't good stewards. They didn't, uh, you know, they didn't, they weren't familiar with, like, the best practices of real media companies. And so they spent, they overspent, they had a facility in downtown San Francisco. Nobody's putting their production facility in the highest rent footprint in the country. Like, you don't see that. Like, all these great companies that are creating content or our networks, they might be near a major uh, you know, a major area of population because they need to draw upon, like, experts in the industry and they want, you know, people to be able to live in the area. But they're not locating their offices in, like, the most expensive real estate footprint in America. And the Pac-12 did exactly that. I went to the facility. It's 118,000 square feet in downtown San Francisco. Okay? I went in. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Like, it reminds me of, like, you know, the University of Oregon football facility had, like, all this Brazilian hardwood floor and leather that you could only get, you know, in one place and etched glass. The Pac-12 conference headquarters was not that far away from how ridiculous that is. Mm -hmm. They were not that far removed. It was really nice. And I remember walking around there, getting a tour on a Saturday. Nobody was there. And seeing the facility and I was like this I've been in the Fox I was in the Fox studios I did a FS1 show one you know one summer they had me come in and do shows and I sat on their set it was really nice but you know what the Pac-12 network set was just as nice and also located in an area that was cause costing them 12 million dollars a year in rent wow 12 million dollars so I hope they get out of the media company business I think it needs to be outsourced sell it to Amazon Rent it to Amazon. Sell it to Apple. Sell it to, you know, YouTube. Uh, you know, sell it to somebody who knows what to do with it. ESPN. Let them run the networks. You could still do your own in-house production. Like, they're not going to be interested in doing golf and tennis and the Olympic sports that the Pac-12 presidents care so much about. You can still produce that content. You can still stream it at Pac-12.com or whatever. 
They can still be in that business to some extent, but they need to get out of the business of producing their own football games and basketball games and leave it to the experts. You know, again, they should not have hamburger on the menu, okay? It's not what you are. All right, coming up, the five biggest, baddest stories in the land. Anna's been working hard on this one. I'm curious to see where you're going to go with these five stories. I did peek over your shoulder. I think there's a Justin Herbert tangent here coming up at the 5 at 5. Leave it here. you got the BFT. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. By the way, to the guy earlier who called in, now he has a conundrum about Super Bowl Sunday. Who schedules a basketball tournament on Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> you, two things you don't want on Super Bowl Sunday. You don't want a basketball tournament, a youth tournament, or don't schedule your open house if your house is listed on the market for Super Bowl Sunday. You don't want that. No one's coming. Take it from me. I'm here to tell you. You can serve all the snacks you want. No one's coming. People want to watch the Super Bowl at their house. Thursday, we'll be broadcasting live from the MGM Sportsbook at Spirit Mountain. If you are in the neighborhood or want a little adventure, Ann and I will be out on site at Spirit Mountain, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., broadcasting this show. Former Oregon Duck Dennis Dixon's going to stop by. We'll talk all about the Sportsbook what kind of wagers they have for the Super Bowl. Uh, we'll be out at Spirit Mountain. They'll be giving away some prizes as well. Hope you stop by if uh, you're in the neighborhood. That's Thursday, 3 to 6 p.m. Well, all day long, Anna's been talking about this 5 at 5. You ready to do this? Yes. All right, let's do it. The 5, 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Number one on the board. Anna, what do you got? Wasting no time, former Cowboys offensive coordinator Kellen Moore has been named the new offensive coordinator for the Chargers, the team announced today. Uh, it's interesting because it's a nice parting of ways. Cowboys coach Mike McCarthy saying after continuing through the end of our season review process and additional discussion, Kellen and the Cowboys reached a mutual decision to part ways, thanking Kellen for his deep commitment, hard work, and dedication. This is a weird move. Uh, you know, if I'm the Dallas Cowboys, um, I would have, I would have, Kellen Moore wasn't the problem, okay? He had a good reputation. It only means that he's the one that, he's the sacrificial lamb in the Jerry Jones uh, farm. So the Chargers hiring Kellen Moore is good for one person and, and one person more than any. It's good for Justin Herbert. He's getting a play caller who's creative who probably, I'm going to say, understands Herbert and uh, who found a job less than 24 hours after it was announced that the Cowboys were dumping him. Moore is 33. You may remember him from Boise State, but he was part of the turnaround in Dallas. I think he's a good coach. I think that, uh, you know, he's probably going to be a head coach in short order. He interviewed with Carolina in the offseason, the Jaguars last offseason. Also, Boise State looked at him before they uh, turned their focus to Andy Avalos. Um, I think Kellen Moore is a good fit with the Los Angeles Chargers. This is what Justin Herbert needed. Remember, Herbert has now had a new offensive coordinator in every season that he's been a pro. 
you go back to his college time. He went through Mark Helfrich, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal in his time at Oregon. Three head coaches. Now a bunch of different coordinators. What Justin Herbert needs is some continuity. I'm hoping Kellen Moore will stick around. Number two, Anna, go. Well, it didn't matter that the police greased the light poles in Philadelphia. The Eagles fans hit the streets of Philadelphia anyway and uh, partied pretty hard. Police department says five arrests were made during the title game celebration. It was a violation of the Firearms Act, assault on police, two more for vandalism of city property. In fact, uh, some of them climbed on a bus stop to catch a better yeah. view of the party and broke the bus stop. Oh, did you see it? They crashed to the ground. Yeah. Yes, I did. It's brutal. Uh, yeah, and, you know, they were actually seen climbing the light poles. I think that the police putting out the we're greasing the light poles thing, I think they just saw that as a challenge. Do you think, like, here's the other thing. Like, you know, the the Phillies made it to the World Series in, in 2022 and then lost the World Series, and then people in Philadelphia went nuts in the streets because they lost. Yeah. Should we be rooting for the Eagles or against them? Like, because I don't know. Like, do you have a sense, Peter or, or Steven? Will the Eagles fans react more violently to winning or losing the Super Bowl? That is a good question. Um, I think I think losing, right? Like, if you lose, because not only, like, I guess if you're because if you win, it's more. I mean, there's gonna be a little more celebration. Where if you lose, it's more anger. I mean, we we've seen some angry fans break TVs. Like if you're out in public, why wouldn't you just break things there too? I think losing probably. Yeah, Philly fan is just fueled by anger though. Like the important thing is that they got there and they get to riot no matter what happens. Yeah, I think they're gonna break stuff. They're no just excited what. to riot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's been so much uh, losing. The 1964 Phillies. Some of our older listeners may remember, blew the National League pennant after they led by six and a half games with 12 games left in the season. People may remember the uh, 76ers losing to the Blazers in the 77 NBA Finals. Then they turned around and lost after leading three games to one in the Eastern Conference Finals in 1981 against the Celtics. Then they lost three straight NFC title games in the early 2000s. Um, there's some baggage there is what I'm saying. Uh, look, I, uh, I think the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl. They better start greasing those poles right now. Number three. What is Stetson Bennett doing? He's been released from a Dallas detention center. The former Georgia quarterback was arrested for public intoxication over the weekend. <laughs> He's in Texas uh, training ahead of the Combine left the detention center before 11 a.m. this morning. Police initially responded to reports of him banging on doors early Sunday in Old East Dallas. They found that he was intoxicated. His attorney says that uh, he was just trying to get into his friend's apartment. He's out in Dallas. He's supposed to be working with his agent and trainers getting ready for the combine. What is it the door knocking part of the combine? I would say that this is youth. Like, we often go, ah, oh, they're just young. It's college kids. He's older than Brock Purdy. <laughs> Stetson, you know? I thought he was going with the Baker Mayfield strategy of get arrested yeah. and get the first pick in the draft. Ooh. <laughs> Maybe he'll fall a little further in the draft. I don't know. This is bad. It's The teams, I'm not sure how they're going to look at this. I don't, I don't think it's going to keep teams away from him. 
but I think it's going to keep make teams ask questions. It may cost him something, but uh, you know, I would, I, I actually would have been okay had this been the day after the national championship. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, he got, he was out, he was partying, you know, he's a 25-year-old guy <laughs> who's going, you know what? How often am I going to get to do this in my life? Yeah. And he is knocking on doors. He gets arrested. We all go, oh, he's celebrating. It's It's been too long, Stetson. <laughs> this needed to have been already taken care of. but Delayed celebration. As we know. Number four. Oh, sorry. I was still stuck on that one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Robert Ori. Oh, one of my favorites. Ugh ejected from his son's high school basketball game for what? For heckling refs, telling them that they suck. The 52-year-old has a son who was a junior at Harvard Westlake, one of the top private schools in Los Angeles. He's a star guard there. I'm sure he's delighted about his father. Uh, during the third quarter, his son picked up his fourth foul, and according to a spectator, Big Shot Bob, is that what they call him? He wasn't pleased with the call, so he started yelling at the ref, screaming, you suck, while standing in the bleachers. He didn't stop, saying, hey, ref, you talking about me? You suck. Oh, you're mad at me because I said you suck. He then climbed down from the stands where he stood on the sideline, continuing to jaw at the refs. A few seconds later, someone came over to him to try and corral him. They started walking toward the gym exit. This is just not a good scene. It's terrible. And a guy who has seven NBA championships, I get it. It's hard to watch your kid and not get swept up in the moment and not, you know, you know, lose a little bit of protocol or decorum. But getting ejected, this is a bad look in so many ways, and especially for Robert Ori, who needed to be bigger than this moment. And I'm glad he's taken to Twitter. Apparently he's apologized. Good. On Twitter. He, he said, was annoying as a player anyway. Yeah. <laughs> why would he why would he be less annoying as a father at a high school basketball game? He says the passion I have for basketball goes beyond words. Words got me tossed out of my son's game. <laughs> Emotions are a part of sports and always will be whether you play or a fan. I've been both. Respect the game and all those involved. Yes, basketball unifies in many ways. Is that an apology? I don't hear an apology there. I don't hear Shocked. I'm sorry. I don't hear that. It's I heard, an explanation. I heard I care, yeah, I care much. I care too much. I care too much. Yeah, it's a justification. It's yeah. not an apology. But it's Robert Ori, so are any of us surprised? Yeah, he's not a... Uh, Peter, you surprised by Robert Ori's behavior? Um, yeah, not really. <laughs> there you go. Big shot Rob tossed from a high school basketball game. By the way, I saw a video of another uh, basketball game over the weekend where the PA announcer yelled at the fans to shut up <laughs> because they were heckling the referees. And he said, the PA announcer, it's classic video, a friend of mine sent it to me, he said, PA announcer says to, uh, you know, there's a foul called on the play, fans are just going nuts yelling at the referee, and he said, and to all the fans, just shut up! <laughs> we have a rule in this league, and if you want to put on the jersey and the referee stripes and get it out there on the court, I'm sure there's a need for you to be out there, we have a shortage of referees. Yeah, I, I think there's a better way to say it, but I agree with the overall premise. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I wouldn't no. say, I wouldn't yell shut up I to fans. I have no problem with that. I wouldn't yell shut up. Mm -hmm. I would just say, if you think you can do it better, go get in an academy and, you know, get a clue. 
and become a referee yourself. Otherwise, enjoy the game. <laughs> and, and, and look, here's the other thing. When your kid gets a bad call, yeah. it's actually good. It's good. I'm right. not saying we should root for bad calls, but I'm just saying it's a moment where you can you know, tell your kid, hey, look, you're going to get bad calls in life. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen all the time. Things, things don't go right in life. This is a great moment to show your kid, hey, look, there, here's some adversity. Let's see what you do with it. And yes, what's that's if you can control your own emotions. Yeah. Well, Rob, Robert Ory apparently didn't learn that in the NBA. He and LeBron didn't get the calls over the weekend. <sighs> All right, number five in our five at five. What do you got? NCAA is beefing up its enforcement staff. Several new hires are starting this week. An associate director of enforcement, specifically over NIL, is starting next month. And the organization hired a former FBI and CIA member last fall. Is the NCAA getting its teeth back? Like, they're going to go after uh, NIL deals. Uh, you say FBI and CIA? Yeah, someone who used to be with the FBI and CIA. I'm assuming that's one person. Look, there's two. There's only two things that could be happening here with this story. Is either the NCAA is getting its teeth back, and it's, got, it's getting serious. It's hiring actual investigators, CIA, FBI. We're going after some of these schools and some of these boosters that are breaking rules. Or this is totally like the NBA when it hired a five-star general to oversee officiating. And we're going to put a general in charge, and they just trotted him out in his uniform. And they said, this guy here is going to clean it up. We don't have a problem anymore. And it's, uh, it's used to kind of, uh, you know, public relations move. You know, do you think – I don't know if I'm the NCAA. I would, I would uh, trot this out or not. Like, I'm trying to think, if I want to catch people, I don't announce this. I just put these guys to work. If I, uh, but I think part of this is about the public. Like the public perception is that the NCAA is not very good at its job, and it doesn't have any teeth, and it's uh, in this for the money and not the kids, and that it's evil, and that the Death Star is located in Indianapolis. You know, we all we all sort of look at that, but maybe this is a step in the right direction. Well, so there's a new bylaw that went into effect uh, January 1st that says the enforcement staff with the NCAA will no longer be hamstrung by uncooperative witnesses when it comes to potential NIL violations. So now investigators can use circumstantial evidence like a tip or a news story instead of on-record sourcing to presume that a school violated mm. NCAA uh, rules. That's problematic. They, they should just give them subpoena power. You know, because each state has NIL legislation. Yeah. There should be subpoena power available to them. I'd have to talk to my prosecutor friends, get them on the show <laughs> to tell me what that would take. But, I, you know, I think the problem has always been that the NCAA investigators can talk with the coaches. They can talk with the athletes. But unless they find a smoking gun or a sack of money or somebody willing to say, yeah, you know, this is what happened and be honest about it, you know, but more often than not, the cases that where they actually nail people involve like there was a financial scheme going on somewhere else, and they had you know it got wiretapped it, and they had subpoena power and the ability to make witnesses talk on the stand on the record, with uh, fear of perjuring themselves. So, mm -hmm. you know, the NCAA, I'm not confident that they can do this without congressional oversight, unfortunately. But let's see.
I don't really understand it because it's like the Wild West, right? But one of the key rules is that a third-party entity can't strike a deal with a player before they actually sign with the school. Yeah, so basically a recruit who's in high school, you know, the NIL deal, the NIL collective can't go to him and say, hey, we'll give you a million dollars if you go to fill-in-the-blank university. They have to wait until that person actually commits to that university, signed and sealed, uh, going to that university, and then go, hey, since you're going there, we can give you another deal. But we all know what give happens. Give me a free. Yeah. There's, there's, so there's nobody in a collective that's going to be whispering to the parents of the kid going, well, here's the deal that well, we can get you. Look, the coaches, have, I've talked to coaches who say that it's part of the conversation now when they're recruiting athletes. It's, you know, what can your collective do for me? That's a conversation that is happening. It's not the first thing that's talked about. Okay, I had a Pac-12 coach, sitting head coach in the Pac-12, tell me it's not the first thing they ask about, but it's among the first two or three things that, that you know, and somebody in the family is going to go, hey, what about the NIL collective? Of course. What kind of opportunities are available for my kid? And then that conversation kind of gets handed over to the collective. So it's happening everywhere. It is the Wild West. And I, and I, don't, I just don't understand how the NCAA is going to come in and go, we're going to start enforcing this stuff based on what, Twitter tips? Yeah. <laughs> Brittany Mahomes on Twitter is going to be one of their big sleuths. You know, I don't get it. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tomorrow on the show in the 5 o'clock hour right here in this segment, Oregon Ducks men's basketball coach Dana Altman will be joining us talk about their season. I think they have the biggest game of the Pac-12 schedule this week as Oregon will travel to Arizona to play Arizona on Thursday and Arizona State on Saturday. Uh, Ducks and Beavers both in the state of Arizona playing those games. Uh, Oregon had a uh, nice win against Utah on Saturday. Dana Altman improving to 23-2 and all-time against Utah. He's got Utah's number. I, if I'm Utah, like Dana Altman every year looks at the schedule. He goes, you know, those two games probably probably belong to me. Puts him in the win column. Uh, Oregon's now sitting in decent shape in the Pac-12, and I think especially in good shape if you look at where they started the season. I think they have so much work to do still, though, in the conference standings and on their schedule to get anywhere near thinking that they have an outside shot at the NCAA tournament. They're uh, currently sitting at 7-4, and four, puts them in about fifth place in a very tight Pac-12 race. But here's the bonus for Oregon. This week they'll get the two Arizona schools, Arizona State and Arizona. The, after that, they will get UCLA and USC. So if you are Oregon, you are looking at a schedule that has at least presented an opportunity for you. Keep in mind, uh, in the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas, top four teams in the conference get buys in the opening round. So Oregon's chasing one of those buys. Uh, they're going to have to get by one of the either the L.A. schools or one of the uh, Arizona schools slash Utah uh, in front of them. I think Utah is a little vulnerable, but right now UCLA on top of the standings at 8-2 and two in conference play. Arizona is a half a game back at 8-3. and three. 
USC is a full game back of UCLA at 7-3. and three. Utah is a game and a half back. Uh, and Oregon now just two games behind UCLA and uh, only a half a game out of fourth place in the, uh, in the conference race chasing Utah. But unfortunately, Utah has Stanford and Cal this week. Should be win-win uh, for Utah. So Oregon's got to do well in this Arizona swing. Uh, I am looking harder at the Pac-12 basketball scene. We'll be talking more about them leading into the conference tournament in uh, the second weekend of March. But right now, uh, Dana Altman on the show uh, tomorrow at 5.15. I want you here for it. Make an appointment if you are a Ducks basketball fan or an interested Pac-12 party. We'll talk to him about the upcoming games at Arizona and Arizona State. Uh, right now, if the season ended today and the selection committee had to make decisions, I I think the Pac-12 only probably only gets two teams in. I think UCLA and Arizona get in. I think, though, that USC, mark my words, I think USC might win this conference. They're dangerous. They're good. They're healthy. And they're just they're coming off a win over UCLA. And I just like what USC is doing. They They look dangerous to me. So... I think USC is probably going to make the NCAA tournament, and they're kind of a sneaky bet to win the Pac-12 tournament if you're into that kind of thing. So keep an eye on the Trojans down the stretch. I just think Andy Anfield's got them playing really good. They're very businesslike. They've got some really good perimeter players. They have a uh, you know they got their big guy back now who uh, I think will play in the NBA, and I think uh, you know I I think that Arizona and UCLA, frankly. Nobody in the Pac-12 is going to want to hear this, but I think they're I think they're a little overrated. Uh, I'm not that impressed with what I've seen, and maybe college basketball at large is maybe it's a down year. But I'm looking at them and I'm like, is that really is Arizona really the number five team in America? This is Arizona that lost to Washington State, uh, you know, and Arizona that you know, granted they beat UCLA, but I I look at UCLA and I'm going, eh, not that impressed with UCLA either, but. Everyone will call me a hater for saying that, but Pac-12 is going to get two teams, maybe three in. Unless somebody like Utah or Oregon happens to win the conference tournament, then maybe they get four, a fourth team in. But Dana Altman tomorrow on the show uh, in this uh, in this segment that you're listening to right now. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll pepper him with the questions tomorrow. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about the discussion we started in hour number one about NBA talent. What is happening in America that – foreign players you could put a foreign all-star team together that i think would dribble circles around the best players we are developing in the united states what is happening there uh what is going on with the game we'll talk more about it we'll take your phone calls as well we'll also kick around a couple of new things that you know i I think are coming down the pipeline when it comes to major league baseball there's a development in tampa that i think is interesting if you are a MLB to PDX fan. We'll talk about all that in the next half hour. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Hater Sampson and the Pulse coming up top of the hour. 6 o'clock right here on 750 The Game in Portland. Peter, what are you going to do on the show today? Yeah, we're going to put a a bow in uh, the AFC-NFC championship game, and then we're going to look ahead to the Super Bowl. Of course, Trailblazers uh, playing. They're in action tonight as well, so we'll kick that around as we approach game time. 
Love that. Uh, Blazers, uh, what, you know, how are you feeling right now? Because there was a little uptick there, and then there was a return to reality. Uh, how are you sitting with them right now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, lukewarm. I mean, they're good enough that they can win any given night. You know, it's, it's just, how do you want to look at it, John? They're two and a half games out of home court advantage in the playoffs. And they're also just a couple games out of being the worst team in the Western conference. And it's, it's not just the mediocrity. It's, it's the inconsistency. They look like they can beat anyone any given night. And then they'll come out, lay an egg, score, you know, 12 points in the first quarter. And that game's over before it started. I, you know, I was kind of looking around over the weekend, kind of looking at kind of how they, a bunch of different media entities will rank the teams and our weekly power ratings. And I look at those only to kind of see, like, what is the perception outside in? Because I'm not sure what to make of them three games under 500. And, and yet you look at the standings and you go, okay, they're not that far out of fourth or fifth. And then you go, well, they're not that far from the bottom. Most people have them about 24 or 25 out of uh you know the 30 teams in the league is that accurate in your mind i mean if we're just if we're going to seed these teams um i you know you guys feel like that's about accurate or or are the national people missing something i mean it's it's about right because if you if you want to quibble with it it's due to something that maybe everyone deals with like oh well they've dealt with injuries well okay a so does everyone and you know even if you didn't have the injuries it's it's a talent issue i mean the way i put it one day last week was they're the worst team that's trying every team below them in the standings and it might have changed in the you know the five or ten days since i said that but every team below them is actively trying to to lose games and it's not a good place to be in if you're the worst team that's trying to win on a night-to-night basis yeah they're better than charlotte they're better than orlando they're better than houston they're better than detroit they're better than san antonio maybe indiana yeah, maybe. maybe i like indiana's coach i like rick carlisle better than i like chauncey billups that that's a difference for me. Did you see the other night, uh, Sunday, it was last night, they were playing in Memphis. Pacers are playing Memphis. Pacers are bad, okay? They're like, the, you know, they're four games under five hundred. Uh, but the Pacers, it was like 30 seconds into the game, okay? First quarter. Rick Carlisle called timeout. <laughs> <laughs> they're down 5 nothing. He said, stop, no. Stop. That's a Greg Popovich move right there. I love that. But th- it worked. In the next 18 <laughs> minutes of the game, the Pacers blistered the Grizzlies. They beat them 56-32 to 32 in the next 18 minutes. Like, they beat them by 24 points. They had a 19-point lead in the second quarter. But then they became the Pacers again. They lost by 12. So, um, <laughs> it, I liked what he's trying to do. Like, he was like, no. Well, you know, it, but... <laughs> I, I like Rick Carlisle. I, uh, I would like to see him coach in Portland someday again. I think that would be a fun thing. And I know he, I know that, you know, he reached out to me years ago when Nate McMillan was the coach. And, you know, Carlisle's wife is from Seattle. And he obviously has a connection to Portland. And he, I think he had an affinity for, you know, the Blazers organization. I think it was part of, partly why Terry Stotts got the job. They're very close friends. And Carlisle gave him sort of the stamp of approval for Paul Allen when they interviewed Terry Stotts. And, you know, people may remember when Carlisle was with the Mavericks, Stotts was sort of his offensive coordinator, so to speak, on that coaching staff. And and uh, I think Rick Carlisle always kind of looked over at Portland. I think I that's a guy, I don't know how many jobs he's got left in him, but that 
I would make that trade. I would trade Chauncey Billups for Rick Carlisle in a heartbeat. Oh man, without Harvey. a doubt, and and I know like the way he left Dallas was kind of uh, kind of funky, but I don't blame Carlisle for that. I, I think we kind of give the Mavericks a pass for what a mess that organization has been behind the scenes for the last couple years, and I think Rick Carlisle he just said, "I've had enough of this garbage. I'm going to take a year off and I can go to somewhere else." Yeah, he's 63, so I don't know how many jobs he's got left, but his wife Donna is from Seattle, so. I, you know, I spoke to him a couple of times, and he was like, man, you know, I'd love to get to the Northwest. I think she would love to be there. I believe she's a doctor, too. So I think, you know, there was uh, some desire for Rick Carlisle to get back to Portland or Seattle if Seattle had an NBA team. Uh, keep an eye on that. Um, hey, aside from the obvious on that, by the way, because everyone always talks about the Sonics leaving for Oklahoma City, what a terrible thing it was. I think everyone agrees it was awful that David Stern probably – on his deathbed, was like, that was the thing I should have done better. That's the thing that I didn't get right as commissioner of the NBA. We all sort of expect that Seattle's going to get a team and that there'll be a bunch of excitement like there was for the Kraken going to Seattle and that the potential for a rivalry between the Sonics and the Blazers could sprout again. Do you guys think that that would be an immediate rivalry or do you think it would take time in that it would be a while before people kind of recognized the history. And I do think the history of the old Sonics organization with the Blazers mattered. And there was just, you know, kind of a rivalry between those cities anyway. But is it does it immediately become a fierce rivalry or will that take some time? Yes and no. I think the the fan bases will automatically consider it a rivalry, but it will take some time for a little bit of bad blood between, you know, players and coaches and all that to sort of build up maybe younger fans that haven't experienced it before. But I think there's enough people maybe our age and older that are uh, that are hyped just to be able to drive up I-5 or down I-5 and just root, you know, against the the home team. I, what about you, Stephen? Immediately, does your kid hate the Sonics, or does that take the Sonics and Blazers having to mix it up a few times? I think it's immediate. Uh, you know, like I think Portland and Seattle always has that rivalry. Portland feeling like Seattle's little brother, and Seattle feeling like the older brother, right? Like they feel like Portland doesn't belong on the same level as them. So I do think that that rivalry, uh, for the fans at least, will be uh, present from day one when that day happens. I think it's going to be fun when that does happen. And I think and I think it makes sense. Like everybody I think speculates about it and we hear like Gary Payton says, "Oh, Seattle's going to the Sonics are coming back." Like we're all, I think everyone's listening to the same reports and regurgitating the same stuff. That said, I get why people are excited. Like that team never should have left. And I I remember going up to one of the last Sonics games and I was there in the arena when Clay Bennett was talking with the uh, sort of he had just bought the team and I was in the arena early and he was talking with the ushers and the security staff in the building and he stood in front of them and I was off to the side I'm there as a media member but I'm off to the side and Bennett's explaining to them nothing's going to change we bought the team he's having this very open forum with the with the ushers and everybody but everybody knew that they were moving everybody knew that they were gone everybody knew that you know and I don't know that we should blame Clay Bennett necessarily. I think there's some other. Obviously, David Stern played a ma- major role. He was ticked off at the city of Seattle, and the they didn't give the Sonics what they needed to refurbish and build a new arena or enhance the arena. And I think there were some other parties there, including the group that sold to Clay Bennett, that are more culpable. Because once you sell to Clay Bennett, like 
his allegiance and his connection is to Oklahoma City. Like, it was just a matter of time before he left there. Do we blame Clay Bennett? Is Because people in Seattle hate him. Yeah, then they should. Yeah. They, they should hate him because, uh, like, you're right. Like, as soon as it was sold to Clay Bennett, there was always a thought, like, well, they're gone. Like, he has no affiliation with Seattle. I think that's always the fear here in Portland. Like, with Jody Allen eventually, hopefully, selling the team, that's why the Phil Knight proposition is so friendly for Blazer fans because we know that, you know, he's an, yeah. Oregon, he's an Oregon guy. Like, he's going to want to keep the team here. There's always the fear that someone will want it, maybe even a Seattle person, and move it up to Seattle or something like that. Like, and I understand that because it's been done in the past. I don't think Portland would ever move, but at the same time, like, that is the big fear. So I, I don't blame Seattle fans for hating Clay Bennett as they should. I would, too. Yeah. The, meanwhile, in Tampa, you know, they're, they're talking about redoing uh, their baseball stadium. Uh, I'll update you on that. But I, along the Sonics line, Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times joined us uh, in, in May to talk about the A's. We were talking about MLB to PDX. And I asked Divish about the A's drawing like 5,000 fans on a Tuesday night at the Oakland Coliseum. And he, he referenced what the Sonics did under Clay Bennett. Maybe we'll be talking about baseball in Portland. If you've seen those crowd, those pictures of the crowds in Oakland, they raised season ticket prices 40% going into this year. They don't market the team. is exactly the playbook that Clay Bennett and those guys used in Seattle in 2008 and 2007 those years trying to get the Sonics out. It's the exact same playbook. Make it look bad. Make it look like it's easier to leave, and that's what the A's are doing. Yeah, and look, I uh, I don't necessarily – I don't put – I think Bennett's a villain, but I don't think he's Lex Luthor in this movie. I think Lex Luthor was David Stern. He had it out for Seattle. He was really ticked off that they wouldn't do what he wanted them to do. He got mad. He opened the door here with the potential for the Sonics to be sold. Of course, you had uh, Schultz in the group that owned the team. They sold it to Bennett. They could have sold it to a local group that would have kept it in Seattle. Instead, they you know, opted for the Clay Bennett-led group. Like, everybody knew what was going to happen. But here's the silver lining of all of this, if you're a Blazer fan. First of all, there's two expansion cities that everybody knows are no-brainers. They're game-changers for the NBA. We're talking about franchises now that are being valued at $4 billion if you look at the sale of the Phoenix Suns. So you're talking about franchise fees that will be astronomical for Seattle and Las Vegas as expansion cities. Nobody in their right mind, no owner in their right mind, is going to allow anybody to move to those two cities because you're going to cannibalize the potential to collect a windfall. Every owner in the NBA is going to get paid when the Sonics uh, get a team again and Seattle gets a team and Vegas gets a team. Everybody's getting paid. So nobody's moving to those cities. No owner in their right mind in the NBA, Mark Cuban, anybody else, is going to say, yeah, I would be okay with the Blazers moving to Seattle or Vegas. Nobody's going to do that because they want those expansion fees, and that is going to be premium money in Seattle and Vegas. So that's a silver lining if you're a Blazer fan. The second part of the silver lining playbook here is that Adam Silver had a front row seat as he watched David Stern make the mistake of his career in letting the Sonics leave Seattle. Adam Silver's not going to want a mess like that on his hands. He's a smart guy. I think he knows Portland is a viable NBA city. He knows it has an arena. 
He knows it has a supportive fan base that will keep coming back even though the team has just been, you know, mediocre in some years and mediocre plus or good minus in other years. The fans come back. They buy tickets. They support. So I think if you're a Blazer fan, you look at those things and you go, look, even if this team is sold to an ownership group that's got roots elsewhere, you don't need to worry about those things necessarily like maybe that you would have in past years. Because I don't think Adam Silver is going to open the door for the Blazers or any other team that's got a solid base in an arena that to move. And I don't think that the NBA owners are going to want to cannibalize that payday that they're going to enjoy. Uh, that said, Jody Allen's still part of this equation. And I don't trust her. And I don't know her that well, but I don't trust what she's done to this point. And I certainly don't trust Burt Cold, the uh, vice chair of the Trailblazers, and Paul Allen's former right-hand man uh they're just they just haven't made good decisions that are that are holistic so to speak i had somebody in the nba a a sitting president of an nba team tell me that the blazers need a holistic approach they need somebody who will understand the market it's a very different market who understands the history of the franchise who understands the fan base who understands the market who knows what Oregon is and knows what Portland and the Trailblazers mean to the state of Oregon. They need a holistic approach, not just an auction, take the highest bidder. That's what I fear with Jody Allen and Burt Cold, because my sense is they'll want a victory, and they'll want to puff their chest out and say, we got more money than the Phoenix Suns sold for, and they'll want to take a victory lap. And I think that's where you start to get in trouble where you know, it starts to not be holistic. It starts to not fit the market. And that's why, frankly, the no-brainer is Phil Knight. If you're taking a holistic approach, Phil Knight should own the Trailblazers. He wants to own the Trailblazers, it should be done. Alan Smolinski, the co-owner of the Dodgers, he wants to be part of it. It's done. It's over. It's a good ownership group. Sell it today. Sell it now. But Jody's not there yet. you know. And the Suns deal is supposed to be finalized here in the next week. Uh, as soon as that's done, I think the, the attention of everybody in the NBA is going to turn to Portland and go, hey, what's happening with this team? And Jody's got to answer that. This team needs to be sold. It should have been sold yesterday. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tomorrow's show should be a lot of fun. Uh, we've got a couple of guests coming down the pipeline. Uh, first and foremost, Dana Altman will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. In the 4 o'clock hour, uh, we will talk to Rob Nyer, the longtime baseball writer turned commissioner in baseball. We'll be uh, diving a little bit into baseball and uh, what happened uh, to uh, – uh, what happened with uh, the Tampa Bay Rays today? A little bit of news out of Tampa as the Rays are looking for a stadium site. In fact, they uh, appear to have picked one for their new Tropicana Field uh, location. So keep an eye on that because uh, for people who are eager to see Major League Baseball come to Portland, like, look, uh, you, you know, you may see it as a pipe dream, but um, – the other thing that needs to happen if relocation's not going to happen, if like if the A's are really going to Vegas, and I think they probably are, and if St. Petersburg is going to keep the Rays, 
then then comes expansion. And Rob Manfred, the Major League Baseball commissioner, has talked about expansion. And perhaps Portland could be well-positioned by the time they get to expansion. But the Rays have taken a step towards securing a long-term home in the Tampa area. They are looking at uh, a St. Petersburg address for this one. They want to redevelop the the 86 acres that Tropicana Field sits on. And, uh, you know, this doesn't mark the end of their saga here. Like, it's not a done deal, but it looks like a move in the right direction after about eh, 12 or 15 years of them unsuccessfully trying to build a new ballpark in the area. They... Uh, they got a bunch of proposals the city did in December to redevelop the site. They uh, have uh, apparently picked a site that includes a downtown ballpark and a mixed-use district. Where have I heard that before? But St. Petersburg uh, apparently moving in the right direction. Now, there's a timeline here. They have to negotiate a term sheet by May. They have to secure the finances for this. We've all seen things go sideways when that happens. But apparently uh, they're in the beginning stages of putting in a 30,000-seat ballpark with a fixed roof um, and a pavilion, and it'll be open year-round. They can have concerts and festivals there. They called it a once-in-a-lifetime project. Can Portland get a once-in-a-lifetime project of its own going? Uh, and, and it feels like this is the move now, not just in baseball but in a lot of different things, in college football stadiums and whatnot. Um, I think it, I find it really interesting that before the pandemic hit, we had this attendance crisis that was forming in professional and college sports. I documented it in college football. I wrote about it, and I did a series on the attendance crisis that the Pac-12 was facing. And it turns out that not only the Pac-12 was facing an attendance problem, but the Big Ten, the SEC, the Big 12, everybody was down. Everybody's attendance figures were trending in the wrong direction prior to the pandemic even. So, you know, everybody was going, hey, there's really, uh, you know, we got some issues forming on the horizon here. How are we going to get people into the stadiums? And then all of a sudden, nobody was in the stadiums. So now you have Oregon State downsizing when it does its west side of Research Stadium renovation. So they downsize the overall uh, number of seats in the stadium. That You have the Atlanta Braves. You have uh, the Braves did it right with their stadium. Now you have the Rays talking about a 30,000-seat stadium because they know that, that you can't put in 54,000 seats anymore. People don't show up. I really do think, and I plan to ask Rob Mullins, the University of Oregon AD, this. I think Oregon might be ripe for a stadium renovation at Autzen Stadium. And everybody's talked about expanding it. I don't think expanding is the way to go. I think you downsize Autzen or you keep it the same size and you put in more premium seating, more club-level seating. You uh, take a page from Oregon State and you get into the living room seating suites and those little four mini suites that Oregon State put in. And I think Oregon State did it right. Like, they sold 100% of their premium seating. They are going to have uh, a rock and racer stadium next season, not just because they redid the stadium and it looks like it's pretty dang nice, but they also did it in a way that fosters demand and and creates a uh, experience. And uh, the seats on the west side of the stadium are awful close to the action. Like, they're right down on top of the visiting team. And 
Uh, apparently, you're going to have the ability to be on that concourse, which they call Beaver Street, and you can look out to the stadium. And I believe you can't get closer to the field in any Pac-12 stadium. So I think they're creating experience, and they're selling it at a premium. And they're going to get uh, a healthy amount of money for those seats. So they've created some revenue. They've solved a problem. And they don't have as many seats to sell. They don't have the inventory to sell. And, look, this whole thing started with Bob DeCarolis back in the day at Oregon State. Like, he did the east side of the stadium, and he did it right. And he deserves a ton of credit for that. Like, while we were watching Research Stadium come together, I hope people are going, you know what, Bob DeCarolis started that thing. Give him a fist bump. Like, that tip of the cap. That was a big lift that DeCarolis and his staff pulled off. And now Scott Barnes and his staff are completing the loop. And they're doing it in the right way. And I think Autzen Stadium could take a page from that. And I've even talked to people who have talked about Matthew Knight Arena in the same vein. You know, I've seen a lot of games where you can tell Matthew Knight Arena is not full. And if you're watching on television, you've seen Oregon play a, a home game, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of seats in there. But they wanted the ability to host some NCAA first rounds and to have – maximum seating for concerts and other things. And so, you know, there was a big push there to, you know, go bigger with the seating. But I think now, as I look back, what they probably should have done with Matthew Knight Arena and should do with Austin Stadium at Oregon is perhaps remove some seats and get back into, hey, let's create premium seating. Let's create the living room feel, more club seating, more luxury suites. I think that's the way to go. And it's obviously kind of where the uh, Tampa Bay Rays are thinking as they go to a 30,000-seat stadium that they will build. And hopefully people in Tampa will come out and see that team play games because they haven't in the past. Uh, all right, Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up. He's all over it. Give Peter a shot out of the gates. If nothing else, listen to his opening monologue. It's always worth the price of admission as Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up. The Bald Face Truth back tomorrow Dana Altman on the show tomorrow, along with Rob Nyer, longtime baseball writer and a guy who's now serving as commissioner of a baseball league. It'll be a fantastic show. Get a podcast of the BFT anywhere that you get a podcast, and you can find me and my written work always at johnconzano.com. Uh, Stephen, I appreciate you and your hard work. Peter, thank you. Judah, everybody, appreciate you guys. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another great show. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time. Keep it locked in here.